Hello again, everybody, and welcome into another edition of Political Beats, a presentation of National Review. You can find us on Twitter at political underscore beats. Reminding you to subscribe to our feed for new episodes through Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, or TuneIn, or go right to nationalreview.com. In the corner, click on podcast to find all the fine NR podcasts, including this one right here. Listen, enjoy, share, please leave reviews for the program. My name is Scott Bertram. You can find me on Twitter at Scott Bertram. My tag team partner standing by, as always, is Jeff Blair. Jeff, how are you? I, I've had enough of your prima donna ways. I've had enough of your <laughs> drug-addled rants. I've had enough of the way you try to constantly make us do podcasts about threesomes. So you know what? <laughs> I'm hiring you from the podcast, and I'm putting a horse on the next one with me. That's all right. I'm. I'm. Well, I'll kick you out, and then find someone else with the same last name to actually fill in for you. <laughs> perhaps at Esoteric CD on Twitter for Jeff. And our guest on this program is the editor-at-large and editor-at-large at Reason, co-author of The Declaration of Independence, How Libertarian Policies Can Fix What's Wrong with America, a Ph.D. in American Literature, and a former teen magazine editor. Find him on Twitter at Nick Gillespie. He's Nick Gillespie. Nick, thanks for joining us. <laughs> Thank you for having me. I have been waiting my entire career for this because I, uh, somewhere deep in my online bio, I list, I used to... I was a, a teen magazine editor back in the late 80s. I ghostwrote an advice column for Alyssa Milano for a year <laughs> uh, at Teen Machine. But at the same time, I was working for a bunch of lower tier rock magazines and metal magazines like Metal Edge and Metal Licks. It'll rock you to shreds. Smash It's the American version of that. And I love deep in my bio, I mentioned that I'm probably the only political journalists or only journalists who is uh, who has interviewed Ozzy Osbourne and Milton Friedman. <laughs> um, so, you know, this the worlds are colliding here and it's going to be kind of great, even if we have to talk about David Crosby a lot. Yes. Uh, Nick, before we get into our band today, you give us a snapshot there. But tell us a bit more about what you do now at, at Reason and podcasts and things like that. Yeah, so I'm, I'm an editor-at-large at Reason Magazine, which has been around since 1968, uh, which was an excellent year for the birds, uh, <laughs> to say the least. And and for a lot of music, not so great for the country, but, you know, we'll, we'll, we can get into that. Um, but I joined Reason Magazine in, 19, in the fall of 1993. I had just was coming out of an a English or American literature PhD program, which I wrapped up a couple years later. Um, I record videos and podcasts and write lots of articles for Reason. I was the editor-in-chief of the print magazine for years. Uh, then I uh, was the editor-in-chief of our website, and I launched our video platform, Reason TV, uh, which is all over the place. And I was hired in 93 mostly because I was talking about things from a libertarian perspective, uh, but I was talking about culture. That's my first love. I was an arts and entertainment editor, you know, in college. And that's the kind of stuff that I've always loved. And, um, you know, nothing more than rock music, uh, you know, struck me, uh, you know, just if I'm, I was born in 1963, so I'm getting up there. But I was in the tail end of the, the great rock era mm -hmm. and nothing was more expressive. Nothing was more uh, fantastical and just, you know, rock music was the genre, at least for, or the medium of expression, certainly for men, increasingly for women in my time. I, I And I have a weird, just as the birds, or, and particularly uh, Jim Roger McGuinn, 
toggles between a ridiculous folk ethic and some kind of outer space, you know, bizarretron. I am uh, trapped between the world of culture and politics, and uh, <laughs> you know, uh, and I, I and I, I write a lot of stories, unfortunately, that are the you know the the literary or journalistic equivalent of CTA one hundred and two, or you know, just bad mixings of folk music and and electronica. And uh, as the listeners know by now, we are looking at the birds today. You might know them from their jangling guitars, their pristine harmonies, their eclectic body of work through their career. But uh, Nick, we turn the floor back over to you. Tell us why you love the birds, how you got into them, and why other people should care about this music that they made. Uh, you know, that's a, uh, I, I appreciate not just in this instance, but you know, the platform that you give uh, on this podcast to talk about that kind of stuff. For me, you know, what I love about the birds is first off, you know, and this is what, you know, I'll probably tear up at this point, uh, but I had, you know, rock music is simultaneously, it's off the rack stuff. You know, it's like, you you know, at, uh, up until recently, certainly you couldn't amend it. It was like buying a jacket off the off the rack and you weren't allowed to alter it or, or you know, uh, make it fit you better or anything like that. It's mass produced stuff, um, but it, it has an intensely personal connection. I came to the birds because I had a cousin who was about 20 years older than me, died a few years ago, um, who was a hippie. I mean, this was a guy who uh, was the son of Italian immigrants, fought with his parents, rejected the Vietnam War, rejected, you know, and, and trust me on this, like I can take both the parent side and the kid side, but, you know, rejected the consumerism and the materialism of, you know, of post-war America. And, you know, and I think about his parents who, were first generation, uh, grew up speaking Italian, uh, you know, they're, they're for a, a thousand years, his parents, my grandparents have been bred to be serfs and peasants and, you know, worth less than the, the crops that they were raising in Southern Italy. And then you get this kid who, you know, who gets to grow up in this great flush material uh, uh, moment after the Great Depression, after World War II, and finally, you know, everybody was getting rich. Uh, and my cousin, the hippie, rejected a lot of that, and and he did so for good reasons. But he's the guy. He, at some point, he was getting rid of a bunch of record albums, and he gave me this massive stack of vinyl. And these are, you know, classic '60s records where each one was about six inches thick, and you know, a couple of hundred pounds. And on that, in particular, what I remember is that there was a Columbia record sampler called "Our Best to You." There were two two uh, albums. One was green, and it was like old people stuff. And then um, the, the uh, orange cover was like hippie, you know, kid stuff. Although it wasn't completely that. And on this, our best to you, they had uh, a cover. One of the tracks was the birds. All I really want to do.
I heard that song and I was like, I had never heard anything like it. And it excited me. I was into the Beatles. I, I stumbled into this in the mid seventies, probably about 1977 uh, or thereabouts. And I was like, God, this sounds like a lot of music that I hear now, but it's so different and it's so fresh and exciting. And uh, as it happened, I was listening to that, and then uh, PBS, uh, you know, and as a good libertarian, I hate to uh, admit that PBS, you know. <laughs> PBS has, is brought uh, yeah, you know, I, it's like also where, yeah, I, where I learned, uh, you know, I learned about Penn, uh, Penn and Teller. So, you know, I grew up in the New York area, yes. and they were on, uh, you know, Channel 13 all the time. Uh, but um, there was a, a British TV show uh, that was a history of popular music called All You Need Is Love. And as it happened, I, I listened to The Birds, All I Really Want to Do, you know, 10 years, uh, 50, or, you know, 10, 12 years after it had been released as a single for them. And then I caught the episode of All You Need Is Love that was about the Beatles and the Birds and Roger McGuinn was one of the characters talking in it. And I was like, this band is incredible. So I went to my library and they had a copy of Fifth Dimension, the album, you know, that the true kind of breakthrough album, I think, for them, where they moved from folk rock to psychedelics. It was all about, uh, you know, Eight Miles High is on that. I went to a record store in my area and I started looking at old Birds records. And, you know, it just poured out from that. What I love about the Birds is that I think they are trying to grapple with a, a strong tradition because most of them came out of a folk tradition and were, were really serious about that. But they also, kind of like my cousin, had grown up in a world where all things were possible and they wanted to, you know, let their freak flags fly <laughs> as quickly as possible. And, you know, in their work, uh, and I think, you know, you see this because they went electric with Dylan's songs before Dylan did. Right. But there's this constant toggling be between traditional forms and kind of respect the knowledge of that and then weird experimentation and a love of gadgetry and gimmickry. Uh, you know, we might even extend that in the social sphere to David Crosby's ill-fated, uh, you know, attempts at early attempts at polyamory, uh, you know, which <laughs> helped get him kicked out of the band and all of that kind of stuff. But, you know, they, to me, um, kind of encapsulate both the promise and the failure of this, the best aspects of the 60s counterculture. You know, they tried to be kind of communal. They had five guys, you know, from a good chunk of the band. Most of them were songwriters. All of them were performers. Of course, it couldn't last. Hmm. Um, but they imagined a world of Renaissance fairs, you know, which is the title of one of their songs, of, you know, kind of like hippie communal Monterey pop scenes forever and ever. And you know, and they couldn't live up to that. And then I also, and we can get into this more, you know, what kept happening is that the real world kept encroaching both on their music, their collaborations, and they ultimately did not have the talent to close the deal. Um, I think in the late 60s, if they had been able to put out a truly great record, things might have been different. But in any case, I love their music. It's bright, it's shiny, it's happy, and it's also incredibly sad and tragic um and, and in this i think they share something with the beach boys where you know everything they're talking about are wide open spaces and you know freedom and love and all of this and somehow you just know they are depressed as hell and it's not going to end well i have never been so far out in front that i could ever ask for what i want and have it anytime Knowing this, you found a thought for me that told you just where I should be, and there I stood behind. 
the ones that were before And memories that always seem to tear me from my mind In front of what it is you see me to be I've set you free this time yeah, I get it. The reality of their human conditions kept on kept on bringing them down when they could have soared higher. The thing about the birds for me, and, and this is this is because I come from a much different generation. I come from 1980, so um, and and when you grew up, of course, everybody knew about like Mr. Tambourine Man. So yep. Everything turned, turned, turned. These are all commonplaces, all right. But it was when I finally got an album called Younger Than Yesterday, just on a lark. Somebody said, like, oh, this is the best Birds album. If you really wanted like, you know, to explore this band, that's where you start with them. I got that album, and I, I heard Renaissance Fair. I heard Have You Seen Her Face. I heard So You Want to Be a Rock and Roll Star. I heard all these songs, and uh, I heard Mind Gardens, too. Yee! Uh, <laughs> and uh, I, was, I was stunned by this band. It wasn't just... It wasn't just what I had considered, you know, because what's the rap has always been on the birds. Oh, you know, they were they were just Dylan cover artists, man. Yeah. You know, like they didn't really do anything particularly original. They were just, you know, they covered Bob Dylan songs and they're good for that. But, you know, who really cares about the albums? My God, what a bunch of BS that is. I got, you know, I when we did our Beach Boys show with Matt Welch. Uh, I, I talked about how uh, I kind of had a chip on my shoulder. I've always had a chip on my shoulder about the Beach Boys once I discovered the fullness of their discography. I kind of have a similar dis chip on my shoulder about the birds. I think there are, f you know, I have my little personal list of there are the five, you know, my five favorite bands, and then there are the five objectively greatest and most important bands uh, of all time from like the post from the modern rock era so like yeah. so after elvis and chuck berry and all that uh and you know it's the beatles the stones the who bob dylan uh but the fifth one uh, is for me the birds and when i mention that people say like what well, are you high you know like do you know what you're talking about i'm like no i don't think you know what you're talking about because they're responsible for not one not two but genuinely three of the most important revolutions in rock music, the creations of, and explorations of new subgenres. They invented practically with their first album, they invented folk rock. Then, as you pointed out, Nick, they invented psychedelia and, you know, like psych rock with eight, with eight miles high and with fifth dimension. And then, you know, just when you think they're going to be doing that for the rest of their careers, boom, they completely change directions. And then they invent country rock, which is, uh, you know, uh, talk about a, a neck, neck, you know, a neck snapping left turn for them but it, maybe it isn't as much of a left turn when you think about their actual discography if you go back through it in detail the jukebox is playing a honky-tonk song one more I keep saying and then I'll go what good will it do me? I know what I'll find An empty bottle, a broken heart And you're still on my mind But these guys were so influential, they were so important And not only that, if the only argument you could make for the birds was that they were influential uh, that wouldn't really be a very powerful argument. The fact is that this music is beautiful. 
Those first six albums in particular, they're almost flawless. You know, there are, there, I think, uh, Fifth Dimension, ironically, is maybe the, the one that has the most filler on it. But, but everything else has just so much to recommend it. There's beauty just sort of, you know, exploding out of these albums. Uh, and, you know, it's kind of also a, a classic example of, you know, how uh, a group dynamic can be one of the more fascinating aspects of a band. Mm. So, like, you know, how did this group come together? It was Roger McGuinn uh, meets, you know, local scenester and, uh, you know, coffee shop jackass David Crosby, who has all the good, who has all the good weed, and, and that's why everybody knows him because he'll like walk down the Sunset Strip handing out joints to people. Um, and then they meet Chris Hillman, who, who is uh, kind of comes out of a bluegrass. Uh, background. He's the only one who has a vaguely country background to him. The other guys are folkies. And then they find a, uh, a guy named Gene Clark, who just happens to be an incredible songwriter. And again, what people who aren't familiar with the birds don't realize is that Gene Clark was like the backbone of the band for their first two albums. And then they literally find a guy uh, playing bongos on the beach who can't play drums. But he looks a, he he looks almost like a dead ringer for Brian Jones and the Rolling Stones are super cool so they're like all right we're, you're gonna learn to play drums and that's Michael Clark uh, and he actually did learn to play drums pretty decently uh, so you know give him credit he did learn um, but that's how the band comes together and in, in a weird way you know you know people always made fun of the monkeys they were manufactured by a corporation but well, you know the birds have a slight bit of that in their background yes, as yes. well. Um, but it doesn't matter what they ended up doing, what they ended up creating, uh, you know, the, you know, starting with Mr. Tambourine Man and going onward uh, is, you know, a legacy that, OK, there's a there's a, there. Uh, I don't know if it's apocryphal or not. There's a story that like when Tom Petty covered uh, So You Want to Be a Rock and Roll Star for his live album, like 1986, Back Up the Plantation. Roger McGuinn came up to him afterwards and said, like, you know, thank you for doing that, man. I, I was really worried that like. No one was ever going to remember this music, which just it kind of makes me feel sad because it's like this is music that absolutely deserves to be remembered and remembered for all time. I think this is some of the best that you know classic 60s rock has ever brought out. I, I rank it up there with everything else in the pantheon. And uh, there are probably a lot of people listening to the show who aren't really familiar with the depths, the greatness of the Birds discography, which is why I'm looking forward to discussing it today. When McGuinn made that comment to Petty, I, I guess it was before the Time Life collection started coming out, because one of my first memories of the birds, of course, is, is hearing Turn, Turn, Turn be the soundtrack to Time Life's, you know, rock of the uh, 1960s, whatever that collection was. Um, and so Turn, Turn, Turn was like the first song they played in that commercial over and over and over again. And I think at a point I, I hated it because it was so perfect. It's like it's a perfect pop song. To everything, turn, turn, turn. 
introduction to the birds actually is is twofold uh, one is uh, what jeff just mentioned which is todd petty's live version of so you want to be a rock and roll star from pack up the plantation was in relatively heavy rotation on, on mtv maybe surprisingly so uh, around the time of that release and i uh i really liked that song and found out it was the birds and then my secondary introduction was actually not until i got to college and i had a buddy who was uh, more of a, even more of a music aficionado than I was at that point, introducing me to all sorts of really cool stuff like Love and Big Star. And uh, at some point, he handed me a copy of Sweetheart of the Rodeo and said, you've got to hear this. And I looked and I said, it's the birds. Like, I kind of I know the birds. He's like, no, you don't, you don't, you don't know the birds. <laughs> and so, like, this is not your mother's birds. Right. <laughs> and so my, my entry point to a deeper uh, background on the birds' music was Sweetheart of the Rodeo and, and the, grand, the very brief Graham Parsons era of the band. And I was talking to uh, a friend here at, uh, at the office. We were six feet apart. Don't worry about it. But um, <laughs> he said, man, I, I love the birds, and, and uh, I don't know why they're not quite as well-known or well-respected or however you want to put it. And I did say, I, I wonder how, you know, the fact that they were so eclectic, the fact that they were so groundbreaking in many ways, meant that they weren't considered at this point like masters of a. They weren't, oh, that's the country rock band, or that's the psychedelic band, or, you know, they, they have their, their hands in all these different genres as they move through their career, always looking forward to try something new, to try something different. And so I, I, I hope that one thing we're able to do here is sort of tie all that stuff together and give people a pretty uh, a more complete picture of what the band was and, and how freaking talented all these guys were really from from start to virtually finish you know lots of lots of changes in band members but all those guys brought something different and all those guys wrote songs too i think they all wrote songs at some point for for an album here or there and uh, and so i hope that's one thing we can we can try to do here during the the, the show today I mean, just, you know, I already, you know, give you, you know, part of the origin story of the birds, which I always think the funniest part for me is always that, like, their drummer couldn't actually drum. Uh, they just hired him because he looked like Brian Jones. It's a hilarious little factoid. Um, but they, nevertheless, he learned how to do it. And they had been gigging for quite a while and working their working their way up. They, they actually started as the, the beef eaters, you know, because it was right. the British invasion, right? So they wanted to be like, you know, like the guys with the big fur hats, you know, who stand outside <laughs> Buckingham Palace. Uh, so they were the beef eaters. And, uh, you know, they they were doing demo sessions. These all these demo sessions have been released, and they're a little bit ragged. You know, there's a lot of the songs would never come back, uh, but some of them would, and you hear them honing their sound. Uh, but it was the moment when their uh, manager, a guy named Jim Dixon, uh, gives them a demo uh, that he's gotten from a guy called Bob Dylan. 
of a song that hasn't been released yet. It was an outtake from the Another Side of Bob Dylan sessions. It's called Mr. Tambourine Man. And suddenly Roger McGuinn, uh, who had been you know, sort of high off of watching A Hard Day's Night and seeing what the Beatles could do with their guitars on stuff like that title track, said, you know what, I've got a great idea for this song. And uh, you know, thus, you know, become, thus, this is where the ubiquity of the Rickenbacker 12 string comes into existence you know and by the way you know if you think about you know what's one thing that the birds are universally associated with yes. I would say it's yes. it's the Rickenbacker uh, I can't think of any instrument actually in rock that is more singularly associated with one man than the Rickenbacker 12 string is associated with Roger McGuinn, who at that time, by the way, was named Jim McGuinn. Uh, there's another funny anecdote. Yeah. yeah. Now, uh, you know, uh, the other thing that I would add, which kind of gets glossed over is, uh, and you're, you're getting to it with Mr. Tambourine Man, it's not like they were doing a knockoff of Dylan's version. They were mm-hmm. creating something totally different. I think that's even more true with Turn, Turn, Turn. And and I say this as somebody, I you know, I tried to be a good folky. I tried to say, you know, Phil Oaks and... Uh, and uh, Dave Van Ronk were better, you know, than Bob Dylan for many years. I willed <laughs> myself to do it, and I, I couldn't quite get there. But I really loathe Pete Seeger as as a concept <laughs> and just as as a performer. And you know, and when you a weaver to, and a communist. Oh, uh, you know, the weaver. <laughs> like, yeah, you know, come on. Uh, but um, you know, their version of "Turn, Turn, Turn" is something very different, and it is a an incredible performance that holds up and you know uh, you know and then from that to go on from interpreting people or, or existing songs to creating their own stuff which is unmistakably great i mean songs like eight miles high i agree with you that younger than yesterday is you know it's got a couple of real dogs on it and i think we're going to argue about uh mind gardens i hope so we're not um, really going to argue but I, it has charm but anyways you know like but you know they 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 did it all uh, and, you know, and they created, you know, you're right. I mean, basically they laid out the template where they cleared, you know, they, they cleared the landing for three very distinct, very important, uh, you know, kind of concepts in rock. The one thing that I'll just say is that uh, as somebody who's older, where the birds have been kept alive, Patti Smith covered So You Want to Be a Rock and Roll Star on her, uh, you know, last album, uh, whatever it is. Uh, is it Easter or um, Wave? It's Wave. I'm sorry. Uh, the one that's produced by Todd Rundgren. Um, and Tom Petty was a big fan, and McGuinn covered American Girl, and they were they were pals. And so they bridged into this weird kind of post-hippiedom, almost punkdom, uh, and then R.E.M. came along. And R.E.M., in its early days, in the late 70s, R.E.M. would be, like, loath to admit that they knew who the birds were. <laughs> but it's like, come on, guys. Like, this this is the DNA, mm-hmm. you know, of, of so much that you're doing and so much of that kind of indie rock movement with the jangling guitar and again i think you know it's this combination i think this is true a lot of rock but like a combination of brightness and sadness all at the same time i think one thing that has to be emphasized in in terms of history and the chronology because bob dylan's own version of mr tambourine man is so famous uh people don't realize that the birds version came out uh well before it all right because remember it had already been shot them as a demo uh and also 
they're totally different. I don't actually like Dylan's version of that song that much. I love bringing it all back home. It's one of my favorite Dylan albums of all time. But I actually think that's one of the weakest moments on the record. Uh, of course, you know me, I'm probably out on an island on that. But then Roger McGuinn, as you said, he wrote something new for this. That opening, do, 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 do. That's just Roger McGuinn coming up with that line on his own. This is the anecdote I wanted to tell. His his name back then was actually Jim McGuinn. That was the name he was born with. And you know, unlike you know, like a lot of people who like get involved with you know religious cults or you know convert, you know, <laughs> Roger McGuinn got involved with an Eastern like Indian mysticist cult, and he didn't you know change his name to Bagwash. <laughs> he changed his name from Jim to Roger, which is just about as current as like normally like Anglo name is Jim. I never understood why Roger was the name that he picked. Oh, you know, he. He talks about that, that he had come up with a bunch of his guru, and it was a, a group called Subdub, uh, which had a minor moment of fame. But his guru told him to come up with some uh, words that would describe his energy or something. And he mm -hmm. threw in a list of weird names, all of which started with R's and had to do with like rocket ships and stuff. And then he threw in Roger, because that's what you say at the end of a radio transmission. Oh, like, yeah, Roger. Roger. Yeah. Like it's and then the guy was like, yeah, go with Roger. Um, and, you know, I, <laughs> I, think won't, that, I won't alienate people. Right? McGuinn is one of those characters. And, you know, and he is thriving, uh, you know, as a performer now. And he's since the late 90s, he's been doing this great project that's online. He was an early adopter into the internet and whatnot called Folk Den, where he posts every month a, uh, you know, a, a new version of a traditional folk song. Um, and it literally has been doing it for over 20 years. Um, but he, his personal journey, you know, through all of this and where, you know, be, being a folky, uh, then being a hippie, then, uh, you know, becoming enmeshed in Eastern mysticism and Moog synthesizers, uh, then he became a born-again Christian at a certain point. Um, he has gone through, and now he's back to traditional folk. Um, you know, he his his story kind of captures sixties boomer. <laughs> yep. Yeah, no, and and you know, and that's again, I say this, and you know, I'm I'm from the tail very tail end of the baby boom, and I identify much more as a punk, so I hate all hippies. <laughs> Uh, but, you know, even the Ramones, you know, I mean, they cover, you know, they, they put out an album, Acid Eaters, covers of, of hippie psychedelic songs. Um, you know, so you, you got to love them. Uh, and, and certainly the birds rival the Ramones for having like the shortest records uh, out there. 
Um, but, um, you know, there's something about that journey that tells us a lot about who we were and who we still are, I think, as a country. Because, you know, I, I see like rock music and, and, and I'm sorry to go on about this, too. But it's like, you know, when the birds start doing folk rock, it stops being about Elvis and Buddy Holly and, uh, you know, and uh, Chuck Berry or something like that. And it becomes something very different. And I'm not saying that other stuff is bad or anything, but it becomes kind of what we know now as as popular music, uh, you know, rock-inflicted popular music. And that, you know, that is a story about going from, you know, just being raised for the first time in kind of existential delight where you you don't have to spend most of your time looking for food you know you can start to explore what it means to be alive and i think the birds went further and in many ways more disastrously you know than a lot of other bands but you know that's where they are okay so uh, scott i want to start with you first let's take those first two albums together and, and you know this isn't trying to slight them in any way i actually believe that mr tambourine for me personally is the best debut album of all the great 60s rock bands i think it's better than please please me or the rolling stones number one or my generation but mr tambourine and turn 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 are really kind of of a piece they really feel like it's the same i, mm-hmm. I always think about them and i get confused like which songs are on which album which because <laughs> they can you, you they could go back around and one of the reasons for that is is because of the dominance of a member of the band we haven't really talked about too much which is gene clark gene clark is kind of like you know the sid barrett (laughs) weird way you know of the birds this fantastic songwriter who was the strength and and in really a lot of ways the leader of this band because he wrote all of their great self-written music back in that day so scott i want i want you to to go first and uh you know what are your opinions about these first two records Mr. Tambourine Man's a tremendous debut. I'm thinking in my head as you were talking, if it's the best of all those you mentioned, and it, it certainly has a, a case. Um, a turn, 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 I think, is, is a, a step or two behind. I'm a bit less forgiving of some of the, the weaknesses on, I mean, they're not perfect, and some of the weaker tracks um, I'm, I'm a little less, uh, less forgiving of. But there are, I mean, uh, Gene Clark, you mentioned, his work... His writing work, his vocal work on these two albums uh, is just tremendous. Um, I'll Feel a Whole Lot Better, which is the second track on Mr. Tambourine Man. Mm, probably my favorite track on both of, of these albums. Uh, it's one that he wrote. It's one that he sings. Um, man, is that a great song. The reason why Oh, I can sing I let you go I feel like that might be the most covered bird song of all time. It's yeah, I think of their original, uh, you know, and uh, Tom Petty, of course, I think did that on uh, Full Moon Fever. Like Full Moon Fever or something. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Uh, just a graceful, uh, rising melody. And even way back here, I mean, that, that the guitar solo was certainly country influence. So those, the more country uh, aspects of the birds' music that would, that would uh, arise later, they're not coming exactly out of nowhere, right? But that jangling 12-string from McGuinn to open things up. Hillman, from the beginning, is doing some fairly complex bass work on a song like I'll Feel a Whole Lot Better. And, uh, and, then, and then Clark's, you know, writing, e- even just that very simple... 
cores, you know, it's not I will feel a whole lot better. It's I'll probably feel a whole lot better. There's some uncertainty to it that uh, is an extra bit of depth. And that's part of this early birds is is marrying the the more sophisticated lyrical content with that that rock rock and roll backbeat. Uh, something like Here Without You, which is another Clark tune, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, it um, is. It has that just thumping bass backbone to the track, this very mid-tempo ballad, bittersweet memories, very strong imagery throughout the, of this trip through the city without uh, the person he loves. And this Gene Clark writing is like a 19-year-old songs like this. Um, and, and then um, from Turn, 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 you know, Set You Free This Time is, I think, another Clark uh, song. There are yep. three songs on Turn, Turn, Turn written by him that just stunned me. It's Set You Free This Time, and then The World Turns All Around Her, and If, if You're, you're gone, gone, yeah, sounds like a like, proto-Raga drone. And then they even, and ironically, the best song he wrote for those sessions, they left off the album because they were like paranoid <laughs> about him getting too many great songs. It's called She Don't Care About Time. And if you listen to it, 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 it combines not only, there's, there's, there's Bach in there, there's a Rolling Stones ripoff on there, there's an incredible <laughs> melody in there. It's the kitchen sink in it's a b-side it was the b-side of turn 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 i can't even tell you how great he was as a songwriter during this early year I'm sorry. Keep going, Scott. Well, if you're gone, if you're gone, it's fantastic. Uh, it really shows his growth as a writer, even even from those months. I mean, literally months from Mister Tambourine Man to turn, turn, turn. The way that 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 the energy, the way it punches up into the final verse. That that drone that I think McGuinn is is playing, where he's um, you know adding to to the song and that melody that which rises and falls. If I need you, it's me. You're everything. I have you if I love you just the same If you're here the night is likely going to fall If you're gone I'll see the daylight in that song If I stand on understanding what is now? If I ever need someone to show me how, if the daylight can be hidden by the sun, if it's gone, then I know I will need someone. Clark, just a very, very talented songwriter. And you get a bunch of covers, too. Uh, turn, Turn, Turn is, I think, six six covers and five originally. More covers than, 
that original songs, but something like He Was a Friend of Mine is great. Um, finger See, that's, that's a definitive version of mine. You know, you know, Bob, yeah. Ironically, Bob Dylan took a traditional song. He was a friend of mine as a traditional. And then he, he you, know, you know, sneakily like stuck his own copyright on it. Yeah. He says, written by Bob Dylan. No, yeah. it wasn't. Uh, and then the birds didn't bother to do that. But their version is much more original. They they turn it into a tribute to John John F. Kennedy. Right. You know, McGuinn added, added those, he, those lyrics. Died in Dallas Town, which, you know, it was only two years before <laughs> this album came out. You know, it's actually, you might think like, well, why? It's 1965, but like, yeah. <laughs> you got to remember, this is like massive national trauma. <laughs> and, and it really well, works. Well, at he's setting the stage for David Crosby talking about the Warren Commission. Yeah, oh, my God. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we'll get to that. Okay. <laughs> By the way, before I, you know, say my small thing about these two first yeah. albums, which I think are fantastic, what are your thoughts? Well, you know, I'll, I'll just I'll limit it to one song, which is on Mr. Tambourine Man, and it, you know, I dislike Pete Seeger as a concept. They also covered on on Mr. Tambourine Man the Bells of Rimney, which is a, you know, a song that Pete Seeger co-wrote about a Welsh mining disaster, and it is beautiful and wonderful. And this, you know, I I, I guess if I want to try and recapture something, it's what it was like to be a fan of music before kind of the internet and you couldn't you couldn't find out who was in a band uh, you know because most albums didn't have it or they they had bad information on them they didn't even have the date that stuff came out um they didn't have lyric sheets most of the time and i can remember listening to the bells of brimley and stopping the record player and trying to what word is this? You know, and it's like it's a Welsh mining disaster. So it's like, what the hell is it going to mean? Um, but it's incredible. And there's just something so weird and wonderful and beautiful and different going on. I, I, you know, for me, that's the kind of individual, uh, you know, it's, it's a weird thing to say because they're, you know, they're a band of five people at this point. And they all have all of their own personality. But there was like an individualism to their group efforts and even their harmonies, which is different. That was incredibly exciting. Oh, what will you give me? Say the sad bells of Rimney. Is there hope for the future? Say the proud bells of Rimney. Who made the mind open? Say the black bells. Say the grim bells of life. Oh, 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 oh
So for me, I think the aspect that I want to focus on here, because this is, you know, as I said earlier, we talk about how the birds got this rap of like, oh, well, they're just Dylan cover artists. That's all they do. Well, one of the reasons why people give them that rap is because their Dylan covers are flipping amazing. All right. And on these two albums in particular, uh, they are peerless. So you have Mr. Tambourine. We already talked about that. I don't have to say anything about it. But also on the first album, you got Spanish Harlem Incident. Uh, stuff from another side of Bob Dylan, which, you know, when we did our Dylan episode, I pointed this out. Uh, that you know, It was just almost crying out to be electrified. You know, like you could just tell that Dylan was going and he was writing songs that you could just sense. Like, oh, that would make a great electrified arrangement. But the one, uh, you know, we also talked about All I Really Want to Do. Tell you the one that really blows me away is Chimes of Freedom. Um, <clears throat> it's much shorter than Dylan's version. Dylan's version is is haunting. So I don't think like it's like it eliminates Dylan's version because they're very different songs and, and in different tones. But I just love the Bird's version of Chimes of Freedom uh, from that first album. As we listen one last time And we watch with one last look Spellbound and swallowed till we told and ended Tolling for the aching ones Whose wounds cannot be nursed Beyond that, you've got the, the uh, ridiculous cover of another fantastic outtake. This is the first time anybody was hearing it you know, in the public. Uh, Lay Down Your Weary Tune off of Turn, Turn, Turn is uh, a version that is, I think to me, just clearly superior to the original one that Dylan performed. I think that their ability to interpret and, and find – they don't just like – here, let's add some guitars and some harmonies. That's the way like an uncreative artist or an uncreative group would cover a song. Uh, what they do is they reinterpret it. And, and a huge part of that, I have to say, is the sort of plaintive tone of Roger McGuinn's voice. There's something about McGuinn as a singer that, that fascinates me because he doesn't have a strong vocal approach. You know, he, he, he doesn't blast you like, like Paul right. McCartney or John Lennon or you know, even Mick Jagger has like a snarl. He's kind of got this weedy, like, you know, you know, <laughs> a time for peace. I swear it's not too late. And that is exactly the kind of tone that makes these sorts of covers so moving because they're humble, even as they're incredibly innovative. They don't force themselves upon you. They simply ask you to listen to them. Uh, I just think that the uh, – ironically, I, I rebel against you know people characterizing the birds as like, oh, they just covered other people's songs because they sure as hell didn't. But it, it also has to just be acknowledged that they're one of the most fantastic cover bands of all time. Like they're like Fairport Convention, I think falls into the same bag. They wrote great original songs, but man, could they work their way around a great cover as well. The ocean wild like an organ played 
It's a real um, problem, I think, with kind of rock, uh, you know, criticism, generally speaking of it. You know, and it's because of the Beatles. It's because of Bob Dylan. It's sort of a, and a few like others. The, 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 it's, have, the, yeah. it's the analog of like the auteur theory and cinema yeah. criticism. Yeah. Like, you know, if you're not like a director who like, you know, has a perfect vision that you're stating, you're not a real artist. Right. And That's it's, BS. It, yeah, it, it really is. And, you know, this is something that I think the, uh, the you know, uh, in the wake of hip hop and rap, we're kind of getting away from that fixation on a kind of romantic, you know, a capital R genius who has no influences and comes out fully formed and only performs <laughs> their own breathlessly perfect material. Uh, you know, this is one of the things that I think really speaks to the birds uh, influence and meaning and relevance is that they were interpreting material. Uh, you know, they saw themselves self-consciously as in a genealogy uh, going somewhere. They didn't know where I think Dylan does this, you know, more spectacularly than any, uh, you know, post-war artist in any medium, but that's one of the things that's great about the birds. And 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 for too many years, I think you know, rock criticism was all about you know being the you know the genius as opposed to the uh, you know kind of the connector. So one revolution down, and now how, here comes the next revolution. This is why this band is so important. Folk rock literally gets kicked off. Then you've got a billion bands doing this. You know, the animals start electrifying their music. The turtles. I always make jokes about the turtles on this show for some reason. I don't know why they're my go-to punchline. Everybody and their brother and their sister is folk rocking it up, and the birds say, you know what? Let's trip acid, and let's do something truly nuts. Uh, let's, let's bring Indian instruments into this. Let's do Ragarock and uh, basically prefigure <laughs> what the Beatles are about to do on Tomorrow Never Knows, and that is, of course, Fifth Dimension, which uh, I'm, I'm just going to come right out and say this, that um, I think in terms of like – you ever think about like what, what, what kinds of songs, you know, singles have like the greatest introductions of all time? And I'm saying that there are very few, and I don't know if there's really any that top eight miles high. Every time I hear that, dum, 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 David Crosby finally making a contribution on his instrument. And then Roger McGuinn, you know, coming in with that, that it is, you know what, the idea of trying to play something that sounds like John Coltrane on a guitar sounds ridiculous especially because it's like look at these stupid like you know you know white la folkies who do they think they're kidding <laughs> but he does it. he pulls it off that sounds like jazz music and it's a pop single and it's three and a half minutes long it's insane it's one of the most innovative mind-blowing advances in music uh from that era and I kind of just like you know every now and then on Twitter I'll just like drop that and it's like you people don't realize how important and fantastic this song is go listen to 8 Miles High
I, uh, I uh, agree completely. Uh, it's, uh, you know, the other thing about that album, though, which is amazing to me, are the traditional folk ballads that are on it. So it's stuff like John Riley and Wild Mountain Time and the way they're produced. Um, I, don't, I don't know if you guys do psychedelics at all. I'm a, I'm a fan. I'm partly a fan because of the album Fifth Dimension, where you know, on the front of the the album, the uh, the band is sitting on a magic carpet, and you can see into like it looks like a styrofoam cup, and there's just a glimpse of some kind of red liquid, and it's like, oh my god, like, <laughs> it's, it's the Kool Aid, yeah, right, Kool Aid, yeah, or something like that. It's you know we're we're a decade away from Jonestown, uh, and uh, it you know, but it is. Those songs, uh, Wild Mountain Time and John Riley, which are, you know, they were real uh, workhorses in any any folk cabaret act, you know, coffee shop act thing. The way they're produced and the way they're done is incredible. And I have to say, if you are a fan of psychedelics, listen to those songs on psychedelics rather than something like Eight Miles High. Eight Miles High, you feel like you're tripping and it's, it's you know, mostly a bad trip whether you're stoned or not, those songs are tremendous. And it's, you know, to me, that's like a, a perfect melding of where they have one foot in tradition and they're going, you know, they are going out way past Pluto on this stuff. <laughs> you know, actually, I'm, uh, you know what? I guess I'm going to have to reveal some truths about myself when we get to a later album because I have my own story that, that relates to that with the birds. Uh, but I'll tell you, I've always been a little bugged by the production of those two tracks. They're both really? fantastic. They're both fan overdone. Well, no, 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 no. Not overdone at all. It's just the way that there's the left channel, right channel separation. Uh, yeah, this, yeah, is, yeah. this is a technical thing. But yeah. it's like, you know, you've got like the entire instrumental track. All the band, the music yeah. is in the left channel. <laughs> and then you have like the vocals. They're kind of center, but mostly right. And then the yeah. strings come in on the right. And it's just like the weird – again, maybe it was done by somebody who was tripping acid uh, because it doesn't <laughs> – doesn't seem like it's a well balanced mix. This There's is again, no, a technical I mean, complaint. You can see that on so many other. I mean, I can. Uh, I I think the first song that I remember hearing that too fully was uh, Harrison's "If I Needed Someone." I had whatever <laughs> version of the album I had. You could turn, you know, back when you could yes. to toggle between the right and the left speaker. One was all music. One was all vocal. Yep. Yeah, that, that's yeah. so. It's so sixties. But I have to say, I do agree with you. Um, one of the songs that people don't actually mention a lot when they talk about this album is like Wild Mountain Time. I think Wild Mountain Time yeah. is just so achingly beautiful. It's a, yeah, it's trad. You know, like Dylan did a great version of it. Um, yeah. yeah. And uh, every other band has covered it, as you said. Oh, but oh, the, those strings—they're oh, uh, not overdone in the slightest. The it, it just it, it makes your heart weep. And we'll all go together to pull wild mountains high all across the purple heather will you go I No, and, and you know what I love about this kind of stuff? And, you know, I was a kid when I heard it, but it's like, I was like, what the hell is Wild Mountain Time? Like, and I, I only knew about time, you know, and, and obviously time and various kinds of spices keep showing up in 60s folk rock again and again. Uh, but, you know, I went and, like, looked up what they were talking about and, and Heather and stuff like that. It's just, 
they created a world that it's like you oh so this, is, this is scotland you know yeah <laughs> no, you know and it's like and it, it's rare and then the other for me the other real standout track on that is the uh cover of the uh the hikmet i come and stand at every door okay I, I said this on twitter yesterday and scott you're gonna have to bleep me now that is one of the most up songs ever yeah. released by a major rock group in the 60s yeah this is a song about like the ghost of a dead kid who was killed at hiroshima and it's so like weird it's like you know like i come and stand at every door yeah. i'm a ghost i cannot eat because children when they die they don't grow old you know the the the, the, the heat it turned my bones to ash and then the ash yeah. blew away Jesus Christ, that is a really disturbing <laughs> yeah. sentiment. It's uh, a great it, side one closer, and I really, you know, sides don't matter anymore in CD, you yeah, know, but, in the era of CD and streaming. But wow, but what that's a, the that's the thing. That's why you shouldn't trip while you're listening to Fifth Dimension because <laughs> well, like, you, 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 yeah. you think you're you think you're all peaceful with Wild Mountain Time and Mr. Spaceman, and then you get to I come and stand at every door, and now you're like, oh my gosh, my soul has been like destroyed, <laughs> and you're lost. You've lost well, a piece you know, of your brain forever. I'm only seven, although I died in Hiroshima long ago. I'm seven now, as I was then when children died. It's also, uh, and I, I realize I'm uh, pushing a, a, well, you know, hell, I mean, you know, music is always personal interpretation, but that's also, I see that, um, you know, on, on uh, what is it, uh, at the end of Mr. Tambourine Man, they have uh, We'll Meet Again, which had been the closing song that was used for a laugh in uh, Dr. Strangelove, mm-hmm. but it was a classic World War II story about, you know, troops coming home after the war. This is also kind of a screw you to the older generation. And You know, I I find it kind of fascinating because the birds constantly, you know, and and we see later, you know, with stuff like uh, drugstore truck driving men and whatnot, they, you know, they go to Nashville and they're they're building bridges, but they're also kind of throwing hand grenades at the same time. And they have that again, it, it just perfectly encapsulates, you know, what it must have been like to be young and alive and have everything in the world at your feet, you know, to be in Southern California. You know, in 1965, wow, you know, and like you don't have to work for a living and you don't have to, you know, put up with stuff. You, do, you know, you, you can tell the record man to go screw himself and all of that kind of stuff. Um, and, but they they do keep throwing, you know, hand grenades at the older generation. Scott? One thing that we should mention is that Gene Clark is gone uh, by this point. I think he contributes a little bit to Eight Miles High. He, he didn't contribute. Yep. He actually played mm-hmm. the, he played the sang on the song, and then that's right after that, that's when he left. And that's it. So he's not on the rest of, of this album, and so it's a slimmed-down a little bit uh, version of The Birds. 
Uh, when you talk about the psychedelic uh, songs, the one that I don't think uh, mentioned, I, I see you. I like uh, yeah. very heavy psychedelic feel. I love those jagged guitar runs. And you mentioned Michael Clark is not uh, uh, not exactly a drummer extraordinaire, but he did learn how to play. And I think his work on I See You is very sharp. I the first nice thing I have to say about a David Crosby tune, I actually like what's happening. <laughs> Actually, okay, here's the thing. I actually think that David Crosby really comes into his own on this album, you know, and then he also embarrasses himself, which is going to be the story of David Crosby. <laughs> okay, you like, he does things that impress you, and then he just goes face plant right on the ground, and you're just, you're just like, oh, Jesus, David, oh, God, why do you make it so hard to want to be your fan? So, like, yeah, I see you as great. I really love what's happening, too. That yep. has a great rock sound. And of course, the title is just so, like, spaced out, hippie. What's happening? Crosby. It's question mark. Exclamation point, question mark, exclamation point. It's almost like it was written, it was almost like it was written for Twitter, right? Um, and he's uh, still wearing that uh, like buckskin uh, tunic with the uh, the leather straps to like cinch up the, the uh, yeah. And, and he hasn't he hasn't he hasn't, he hasn't gained all of the weight yet, right? He doesn't still he's not he's not in this like his uh, Jeremiah Johnson mountain man yeah. fate. Um, but then of course those are great songs. But then of course what does he have to do? Yeah. He has to go do Hey Joe, which is one of the most embarrassing yeah. covers of all time. Yes. This is like you know to be like the equivalent of the of the Beach Boys doing Louie Louie or uh, you know like like one of those things where like you just you shouldn't have stepped wrong. And the reason he did it is because like that song had been percolating in the LA scene for like at least a year, and he'd always wanted to do it with the band, uh, and they were like, Nah, I don't really. This is this doesn't seem right for us. And then all these other groups were scoring hits with it, so they finally said, All right, David, shut up. We'll let you do it. And uh, they kind of almost put it on there as uh, a dare uh, to, to to prove him wrong. It's like, listen, this is retarded. And <laughs> here, here you go. Hey, Joe, he doesn't even say where you're going with that gun in your hand. He cops out. He says, where you're going with that mun in your hand? Like money, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> even though it's like he does you know, get back around like saying, I'm going down to shoot my old lady and all that. Yeah. And it's just like, why did you change that lyric, Dave? I don't know. I, it's, it's one of the most inexplicably perversely bad covers of the 1960s. Uh, and I, I guess for that reason, I, I, I kind of have a certain affection for it. <laughs> to his credit, he did acknowledge that it was a terrible performance and I'm state to, uh, to commit to, uh, to Vine. Hey, Joe, where are you going with that money in your hand? Hey, Joe, where are you going with that money in your hand? I'm going to find my woman, she's running around with some other man. Hey, 
Yeah, uh, but he, st- he still made he still made the yeah. band he still made the band perform it live at Monterey. Yeah. I might point out. <laughs> <laughs> Any, anyways, Scott, I interrupted you, so keep going. No, I I, to... um, make sure Mr. Spaceman gets a little note. Yeah. Uh, I really like Mr. Spaceman. Gorgeous melody, a little bluegrass in nature on the guitar. McGuinn said they had heard "Act Naturally" on the Beatles album and said, "Well, we can, you know, it's okay for us to do a little bit of that that uh, two four timing too." So you get Mr. Space Band, which is very good. This is, you know, again, as you listen, it's 1966. This is as innovative as anything else happening in 1966. And by the time, you know, by this time, they're, they're influencing a ton of people with their first two albums. You know, their their folk rock. Um, and they're already moving on, which is going to be the story of a lot of their career. They're, they're moving on as others are are beginning to sort of uh, take what they had already put out and, and, and uh, put it inside their own work. The last thought I'll add about this album is that I do want to actually say something in, in favor of the title track, Fifth Dimension, 5D, um, uh, which, you know, Roger McGuinn, <laughs> you know, is, is, he, he claims that he's upset that people thought this was some sort of psychedelic song. But he was really he was really just trying to explain quantum physics to the people. Yeah. Uh, uh, no, I don't buy that for a second. You were obviously, you know, shrooming your head off with this, uh, you know. But it, it still is such a beautiful ballad. It's a ballad. It's not a rock song. It's not eight miles high. It's yeah. it's it's uh it's a song where, you know, he says like, you know, and, and I opened my arms to the whole universe and I saw that it was loving and, and I saw the great blunders my teachers had made, scientific delirium <laughs> madness. But then he has that great like, oh he just sings at the top of his lungs at the end. I actually think it's as a vocal performance. It's his best single vocal on an bird song. I, I really think it is the best one that he ever gave. And it's one of those songs that yeah, people sort of they, they like and they respect, but they sort of gently laugh at. a performative contradiction right uh, you right. know and this is also true of mr spaceman where you're using this kind of plotting right format to talk about you know aliens uh, alien yeah, abductions aliens. This is a song, yeah, yeah. by the way let's point out this and, is the song in 1966 about alien abductions these guys were ahead of their damn time this is what is you know and, and again if you can you know have a bit of a uh, you know, I, I have this whole concept I'm trying to build that called ironic nearness as opposed to ironic distance. You know, you if you have a little bit of irony, you can stay with these guys. Uh, you know, and it, you know this is what the '60s was about, where you know we're going to love nature and nature is so important, and we're going to you know take jets everywhere, and we're going to have this incredibly <laughs> complex 
electronical gimmick tr- gimmickry and, and gadgetry and everything. And it's like, yeah, it's okay. You know, it's okay to to you know be contradicting yourself in everything you do on a certain level. And and unfortunately, I don't think. You know, in many ways, we didn't resolve that tension properly in society, but it just it adds to the I think to the the weirdness and the wonderfulness of what's going on in all of this stuff. So this basically what you're saying is that this entire mindset just migrated to Silicon Valley in, in the modern era. Uh, yeah, I think there's a lot of that, you know, and, yeah. and it comes and goes. And this is where, you know, there, there, you know, the, the, the kind of spirit animal, I think, of, of the entire counterculture is uh, Stuart Brand. Uh, you know the guy who was a merry prankster, and then he he started the Whole Earth Catalog. Oh, yeah, right. and, yeah, and you know, and he's with the Long Now Foundation and everything. And he's the one guy who kind of figures out how to do this without really kind of stepping in at every every you know part of the path. But right. um, this is one of the things that the birds really do in a very fantastic and and at times self conscious way. Yeah, and I guess that brings us to an album that uh, is this the birds' greatest album of all time. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I, I, I waver. I, I waver. I go back and forth. I mean, boy, everyone's can, everyone can have a different opinion on this. But this is, by the way, has to be pointed out. This is the moment that the commercial fortunes start to dip. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's almost kinks-like in a weird way uh, that, you know, as the uh, kinks commercial performance in the charts went down, their artistic achievement just went up, 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 up. And it begins for me with they started off well, but uh, Younger Than Yesterday is an album that, for me, takes it to a whole different level. This is this is still them in their psychedelic rock phase, but what needs to be emphasized here is that there are so many different elements being brought in. They are unabashedly now claiming you know an idea of country rock as a valid part of this sort of California futuristic rock experience. They are bringing in uh, you know David Crosby talking about his mind gardens. Oh my gosh, I have to. Say, <laughs> we'll get to it. I have to talk about that horrible yeah. song that I still perversely love. Right. Um, but I think for me, the big story of Younger Than Yesterday, which I may still say is the Bird's best album of all time, is the emergence of Chris Hillman, who we haven't really mentioned at all during this show. Chris Hillman, of course, is their bassist. He's their you know third harmony vocalist. Um, and at, up until this point, he hadn't written a single thing. Uh, not one song on any of their albums, not even a co-writing credit. I think like, you know, on like the stupid instrumental that ends fifth dimension, he gets a co-writing credit, but that doesn't count. All right. Uh, Suddenly here, he just dervishes forth with four songs and all four songs are amazing. No, wait, I'm wrong. Five songs. He writes five of the songs on this album. So you want to be the rock and roll star. Have you seen her face time between thoughts and words and the girl with no name. Uh, it's it's almost like he just exploded. I don't know if it was like a George Harrison situation where like you know the others were holding him down, <laughs> and so he had his own little minor all things must pass explosion. Uh, but he makes this album just indelible with his contributions. But the thing is that everybody else gets their licks into, and they even do. Uh, it's funny we've talked so much about Bob Dylan covers. I I think that the Bob Dylan cover that they do on this record is the best one they ever did of all. Yes. And in fact, they'd already made it yes. into our covers episode. Scott, Nick, which of you wants to go first on Younger Than uh, Yesterday? Scott, why don't you? Yeah, uh, I'll go because ac- I'm, I'm just I'm going to echo <clears throat> echo Jeff uh, Jeff's comments quite a bit here. I think if Younger Than Yesterday isn't their best, it's Probably their second best. Um, is likely going to be on my two albums at the very end of the episode. Uh, it's not without some um, 
well, Jeff will cover one of those songs later that aren't exactly on my list of favorites. But yeah, Chris Hillman emerging as a songwriter is is the big thing here, and all those songs are fantastic. Have You Seen Her Face probably is my favorite of those. Um, that arrangement is just outstanding. Very ambitious lyrically and musically. Harmonies it crackles. Are great. It crackles. Yes. That's the thing about that. that in 1967, production methods were still not that great, but that song explodes into your head. Yes. It's that the guitar at the beginning of that thing, just the minute I heard it, that was the moment I was like, okay, the birds are a truly great band. She's close by, makes me wonder why Run by, don't turn back Can't hide from that look in her eyes Must be the way she walks A style made up to capture all she needs No time spent on the song If your luck runs right, she might see you tonight Time Between is is beautiful. The only pain I feel is this time between you and me. Um, and then his contributions to So You Want to Be a Rock and Roll Star. That's just a fantastic, fantastic song. Trumpet solo in 1967 in a rock song? <laughs> sure, why not? The, the cheering crowd, which is from their 1965 tour. The fans going nuts for them in, in Britain. Uh, Hillman's bass line just drives that song, So You Want to Be a Rock and Roll Star. And that, that bitterness in the lyrics, it's really a fantastic package. Then it's time to go downtown, where the agent man won't let you down. Sell your soul to the company who are waiting there to sell plasticware. And in a week or two, if you make the charts, the girls will tell you about I think My Back Pages is the band's best, best Dylan cover. Uh, I don't know by quite a bit, but but clearly is their best Dylan cover. Uh, it's better than the original, better than Dylan's version. Uh, one of the songs that Crosby did not want to record. He did want to go back to the well, so to speak, and do another Dylan song, but I'm glad they did because, again, I think it's their best, best Dylan cover. Um, what else is on here? Um uh, I think that version of Why that closes things up is pretty good, that that was already a B-side on the 8 Miles High uh, single. There's some jazz flourishes here that started on the last album, too. Uh, Crosby's Everybody's Been Burned has that very undercurrent of moody jazziness. I think that might be one of Crosby's very best vocal performances in the group as well. Uh, Jeff will talk about Mind Gardens. It's not, uh, it's not, per- it's not you know, crystal perfect. It's not totally perfect, but it's really outstanding and uh, I-, I think is one of their pr- two best albums of their career. You know, Mind Gardens, yes. I, I, and I agree completely with Chris Hellman, who, of course, you know, went on between uh, his contributions to Sweetheart of the Rodeo and then with the... Uh, 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 Flying Breeder. I'm sorry. Yeah, I'm, thank you. I'm, I'm thinking Gilda Palace of Sin um, is just 
such and then you know uh, uh, with Manassas and Stephen Stills and the Desert Rose Band later as a you know as a, a really uh, influential country band later, just a phenomenal uh, you know performer and contributor to the to the birds and to rock music and country music in general. I'll fixate a little bit on the uh, Crosby stuff here because. I, you know, everybody's been burned. I can remember the first time I heard this, I was, and again, this must have been in, you know, I was uh, maybe 12, 13, and I was falling asleep and I was in a bad mood in my bedroom. And I was like, you know, I was listening to the radio and I was like, you know, I hope I hear a bird song because they're always so happy and upbeat. And somehow on like WNEW or an old FM station in New York, everybody's been burned came on. And I was like, holy cow, this is so dark and so wonderful and moody and atmospheric. It's really a phenomenal track. I know all too well How to turn, how to run How to hide behind a bitter wall of blue But you die inside If you choose to hide So I guess instead I love you I think the real stand-up of Crosby and co-wrote his, uh, at that time, Jim McQuinn's Renaissance Fair, Mm -hmm. which is just this vignette of being at, you know, a hippie festival and you know this is um it gets name checked by eric burden in his version of uh in his song about the monterey pop festival it is um just a phenomenal evocation of you know an imagined possibility of like a world where we were all you know walking around wearing david crosby singlets and (laughs) you know playing lutes and uh you know people with shimmering fabrics everywhere uh, it's beautiful, and, and it, there's a reason. Know, there's a reason that the refrain is. I think that maybe I'm maybe dreaming. I'm dreaming. Yeah. I think that maybe I'm dreaming. I smell cinnamon and spices. I mean, that's the thing. You wake up from the dream, you know, but it's like, wow, it is just so incredible. And, you know, it, it pairs well with Mind Gardens because I think the problem with Mind Gardens in a lot of ways, and, you know, I realize we're kind of doing a psychodrama city fixated on David Crosby right now, but that, you know, Mind Gardens is about Crosby, the individual. It's all me and I and, you know, him deciding whether or not he, you know, he'll have sex with somebody. No, 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 Nick, Nick, Nick. I got to tell you, I, 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 I got to cut you off here. Mind Gardens is about Nick is about David Crosby's attempt to do a Scottish accent. When he's saying, okay, <laughs> well, this is that. Let's get to Mind Gardens. All I'm saying is Renaissance <laughs> Fair. What's great about it is that it's it's not about any one person dominating. It's it's about a you know a community and you know a commune, and it's kind of beautiful and wonderful. Mind Gardens. You know that wall that he's building—it's it's ego, baby—and uh, you know it never does well. Mind gardens on if you get the younger that if you get the 
first of all, when you buy these albums, and you should buy these albums, you should get you should get the reissued albums that have the bonus tracks on them. They're wonderful. They're well curated. They're well done, and they're basically you know complete. You know, after you've gotten them, there's really not a lot of stuff that you need to go hunt down. Um, there's an instrumental version of Mind Cards, and it's just it, it doesn't have David singing on it, and it has got a lot of little crazy psychedelic, you know, rag rock guitar from Roger McGuinn, and it sounds beautiful. It's wonderful, yeah. but then of course David has to give you that stupid, <laughs> stupid lyric on top of it, and it isn't even just the lyric, which as Nick well pointed out is like so self-involved, it's so involuted, yeah. uh, but it's the vocal performance that just drives me up a wall. There, there's this one great, you know, like there were high heels, and then there's this great one. He quotes, "Oh, how pretentious this." He quotes. Friggin' Hamlet, and he's like, from the <laughs> slings and arrows of outrageous fortune, and he trills his R. Go listen to it. He trills his R. Why? Oh, David, why? Why? This is what I mean. Like all these birds albums, all these these you know, from Fifth Dimension to Younger to Notorious, you have like, wow, I'm so impressed with you, David. You're a great artist, and then you're like, oh my God, you just crapped your pants in, in public. <laughs> oh. But there came wind. And I feared for the garden So I built a wall And I built another And roofed it over Thick and strong And kept it from the slings and arrows Of outrageous fortune the killing cold could not get in But when the sun came That's my only objection to this album in any way And uh, it's, it's, it's the silliest thing uh, But, you know the, but on the, another the, level, you need that, right? You, like, you need, you need that. that. That's why. That's why. Okay. I that's mean, why. to make it, you know, it's the drop stitch in an Indian blanket or something, you know? Like, that's why I love it. Okay. I, as I said, I hate it and I love it. <laughs> Whenever he trills that R, I literally just, I, I like literally, I, I twitch. The yeah. I, I, I twitch. I, and uh, I, I also like feel like a little visceral thrill, like oh man, that's some like genuinely great badness, you know. You know, you gotta have some badness in your life. That's why I like bad films, you know. Like I, I like watching Mystery Science Theater three thousand. This is the MST3K of Birdsong, Mind Guards. <laughs> um, I just want to say a couple of other things. Uh, I, you know, we talked about Hillman, so I don't really need to cover that. I think you talked about how great everybody's been burned is, so I don't have to mention that. I want to just point out that my back pages. I talked about this once on our covers episode. So if you want, you can go back and hear something similar. Uh, but I'll just mention again, what impresses me most about this is that um, just like uh, Roger McGuinn did with Mr. Tambourine Man, he essentially rewrote this song musically. You know, Mr. Tambourine Man, he created that that big opening you know, pentatonic riff on the, the Rickenbacker. Uh, and he does it again with, with My Back Pages, except he does it twice over because he not only comes with that great opening, which has become iconic, he also changes the time signature. The original Dylan version is awkward. 
it, it's a that it's a waltz. It's three four. It was like I don't know one of the strangest decisions that Dylan ever made. Uh, and then you know Gwyn was like, well, okay, great song, great message, bad time signature. And so he he, he puts it into four four and he turns it into rock. And that's the only way you'll ever need to hear my back pages again. Something to protect Good and bad I define these terms Quite clear, no doubt Somehow Ah, but I was so much Older then I'm younger than that now I think that, uh, as mentioned earlier, that's my favorite favorite uh, Dylan cover that the, the birds ever did is uh, My Back Pages. And that, what, leads us to uh, 1968 and uh, the Notorious Bird Yeah, and Brothers. can I just uh, point out, though, that from uh, Fifth Dimension, which came out, I believe, in July of 1966, and we're in the thick of it now. Right. They had, like, a two-year period, and we're partway through, which rivals, like, in, in American literature, you would have to look at Faulkner's productive period where he wrote all of his masterworks in a, in a few years. This is an unbelievably compressed moment of just incredible, uh, you know, an explosion of genius and possibility and new forms. I mean, because they're cycling from folk rock to psychedelic and they're moving towards country, you know, at at an amazing clip. So, sorry, I'm just, I I didn't, until I went back and listened again most recently to this, I did not even fully appreciate how freaking great the birds were from 1966 through 68. <laughs> well, I mean, this is actually to me a 1967 album in all but name because it came out in like January, yeah. early yeah. January of 68. Yeah. So it was obviously all recorded long before then. Um, and uh, this is the album famously where uh, you know David Crosby gets fired in the middle of it, mm-hmm. and, and and you know he, you know for years, uh, in fact until this day, he's he said that he hates the cover of the Notorious Bird Brothers, <laughs> which a, is my favorite birds album cover of all time. <laughs> Because okay, so there, there, there's there's Michael Clark, there's Chris Hillman, there's Roger McGuinn, and then in the fourth, they're, they're like you know posing in like a stable, and they're looking out the windows, and in and, and the fourth window of the stable, it's a horse. <laughs> and, and Crosby always said, he's like, you know, like, oh, man, they're doing that because, you know, they fired me in the middle of the sessions. And, like, you know, that's a commentary on how much they hate me. And, of course, McGuinn's famous riposte to this was like, listen, David, if we were really trying to represent you, we would have put the horse's ass in there, <laughs> not his face. Um, but this is also I think, an album where he makes all of his greatest contributions. And, you know, as I started my discussion of Younger Than Yesterday – is this the bird's greatest album? I think I, so. I, you know what? And I completely agree. And there are times when I would agree as well. But there's one thing that always rankles me about it, rankles me immensely. And this is the point where, like, the fighting within the band became so toxic <laughs> that they made, they started making bad decisions. Uh, and that for me is the uh, decision to cut off David Crosby's single. They had a non album single. This yeah. is, I guess, what I want to talk about first. They had a non album single between Younger Than Yesterday and Notorious. It's called Lady friend um it's david crosby's number 
It is the single greatest thing that David Crosby is the sleaziest guy. You know, and this is saying something in rock. His lady friend, his lady, his lady friend. You know, you know, we just like to hang out. We just, we sometimes we spend the night together. You know, of course, David Crosby, eternal sleazebag bachelor, (laughs) until you know he cleaned up a little later. Until he needed that extra liver. You know, he needed to. That's why he was into polyamory because he wanted to have a bigger feel to get organs (laughs) transplanted. Oh God, that's a terrible thought. (laughs) It's hilarious. All right, but here's the thing. that's the greatest song that the birds ever recorded. Full stop. I, I'm not kidding. I, I think that is their best ever song. And everything about it uh, thrills me. The minute I heard it, it, it was actually, it's included as a bonus track on Younger Than Yesterday. It should have been on the Notorious Bird Brothers as the final song. Uh, but they cut it because they fired Crosby and they were just like, well, screw you. You don't get royalties. You know, <laughs> this the single didn't chart that well anyway, so you don't get anything you need. Um, this song is everything about the birds that thrills me. It's horns, it's harmonies, it's happiness. The thing explodes out of your speakers when you hear it in stereo. It has these fantastic vocal arrangements. Crosby comes up with this great melody line that, Here it comes again, I should have learned to duck. It's like a wave coming in, a tsunami coming in to like swallow him up. Um, this is their best recorded song in my opinion and there are so many contenders uh and the only reason that i don't sometimes think that notorious bird brothers is the best birds album of all time is because it doesn't include it What do you guys think about this album? I, I, I am sorry that I, I can't go there. I, uh, I actually find Lady Friend a kind of uh, uh, regression to a, an earlier era that I, I don't find interesting. And I, I think we may have been fighting about this by email or, or, or the fight was a brewing. Um, I wish they had uh, included Triad, the other great controversial David Crosby song on this album. I think it perfectly fits with that. Uh, it's a disturbing and disgusting song, which got plenty <laughs> of treatments by, you know, a greater, you know, or a better known bands down the road a little bit. Um, but I do think the Notorious Bird Brothers is a phenomenal record. And that is largely, uh, not completely, but largely due to David Crosby's contributions, uh, his uh, you know, the, the variety of songs that are on here and the soundscapes. I mean, this is where, you know, that dream, you are in deep REM sleep, uh, REM sleep, and you know that you're going to get woken up. Like you finally realize it's a dream, but it's, uh, you know, songs like Natural Harmony, Draft Morning, Wasn't Born to Follow, Get to You, Tribal Gathering. Um, you know, I mean, they're just so 
lush and rich and beautiful. But and then, of course, but then, it, but then it ends with Space Odyssey, which yeah, is so no. jarring. By the way, okay, you know, I have to give. Uh, I have wait, to give the, the, you got to. Uh, yeah, I'm sorry. Go ahead. You know, you just you have, to, you have to give it credit for actually like doing a better job than 2001 of like capturing the <laughs> Arthur Clarke novel. But like, ugh. The, the last song on this so album great. should have been Lady Friend. Damn it. Uh, um, I think it should have been. Um, I think it should have been Triad or not. None of they shouldn't have been the last either way. I think, you know, a dolphin smile or actually I think draft morning should have been the final song because draft morning is this beautiful soundscape of a, you know, of a kid waking up and dreaming and then realizing like he's going to go to Vietnam. And that's, you know, there was so much violence brewing in the country, both, you know, overseas and domestically. That's what, you know, that's what wrecked the dream that gets kind of, uh, you know, given voice or vision and mm-hmm. Renaissance fair. Also, on a musical note, I'll just point out that Roger Waters totally ripped off the bass line of Draft Morning for us and them on Pink Floyd's Dark Side of the Moon. Mm-hmm. It's literally the yeah. same thing. Totally stole it, and uh, nobody else seems to understand this except me. I'm, uh, I'm going to, like, you know, uh, grind my axe right here while I have the chance. <laughs> I don't think it's their best album, but I I understand the argument, and I I think it is pretty amazing they were able to create what they did, uh, both with with the myriad of of sort of genres that they're they're experimenting with, but also with the personnel issues. Crosby fired, Mm -hmm. Michael Clark leaves the band, Uh, Gene Clark comes back for about three weeks and then leaves the band again, Uh, Clarence White is around playing some guitar here and there, and through all of this... You have these songs that that incorporate folk and country, jazz, psychedelic stuff, um, and even even a little bit of soul. I mean, like artificial energy. I I just really dig that horn section on artificial energy, which is the first song of the uh, of the album, uh, a song about the dark side of amphetamines. They say, um, but th- this is really you is know a... because we've had too many songs celebrating, <laughs> right? You know, we we really needed a cautionary yeah. tale. I think. It's, it's, artificial... it's almost like they listened to the Velvet Underground and said, "We need to counteract this <laughs> this this horrible trend." Hey, white boy, don't cover out here. Yeah, no, 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 artificial... none of this. I'm waiting for the man stuff. Come on, artificial energy, which is the first track in Space Odyssey, uh, which is the last track. Or, or those could be deleted from the record. And it would be <laughs> I, I think artificial energy. Seen, you know. God, like, do we really need, particularly, you know, at a uh, moment, 19th, January of 1968, do we need a rock band telling us, hey, you know, amphetamines, you know, speed kills? kills." (laughs) I don't think so. You know, or 
somebody to explain, uh, you know, uh, uh, 2001 to us. The the track that I love and that I guess is on all of the outtake things and stuff is uh, the Moog Raga, uh, which is also called Universal Mind Decoder. <laughs> and that I would love to, I, I would have been happier just to have like bleeps and bloops uh, close out this record, uh, <laughs> you know, with, with a kind of, in, and again, this is like, oh, look, we're going back in time to, where civilization began with some kind of ripoff of Ravi Shankar, but we're going to, you know, put it to a synthesizer beat. That kind of weird contradiction I just love. But you, you I, do have- I, I do kind of get what Nick is saying, though, about uh, how you could delete. I like, I actually like artificial energy quite a lot, uh, but it does feel like weirdly like dissonant from the rest of the album. Mm-hmm. And Space Odyssey also feels dissonant, but that just sucks. It's just, it's like not a good song. And then it's everything like else. We will fail on the, what, the right. stages first album. That's like, why is it there other than to make the other songs look, seem better well, it's because it's you know roger feels like he liked yeah. the end of every one of these albums he want, or at least one point on these albums yeah. he wants to like to pay tribute to his sort of sci-fi futuristic visionary kind of thing okay. which is <laughs> actually I, I admire it but like you know you could have left this one off but everything in the middle there from going yeah. back to dolphin smile uh, it flows it flows like an oceanic groove i can recall the time wasn't ashamed to reach out to a friend Now I think I've got a lot more than just my toys to lend Now there's more to do than watch my silver fly But every day can be a magic Crosby, of course, famously refused to sing and play on Going Back. Because, uh, because you know, because he, he, I think he realized that it was, uh, it was that or triad that was going to make the album, and he's like, I want my song about you know me coercing you know college girls into threesomes <laughs> to make the album. Um, the discovery of rohypnol or something, and David oh, Crosby's personal pharmacopoeia. See, uh, you know, the other Dolphin th- King song on yes. that is what's important to follow, which ends up showing up in on the Easy Rider soundtrack. Yeah. And um, I think that is actually one of their very best tracks mm-hmm. um, because it, it's, you know, it's, I mean, King and Goffin are, you know, uh, effectively bro-building songwriters. I mean, they're great. I don't mean that to disparage them at all. Oh, yeah, but, you know, they're commercial. We, we, did, we, we did a monkeys episode where oh, we yeah. praised I mean, them to the skies. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, you know, and they're, they're commercial hit makers. This is a weird song for them to write. It's this pay into individualism. It is, you know, it's kind of country-ish, but it's also kind of psychedelic and it's just yes. weird and it's so beautiful. And then it works. I mean, Easy Rider to me, and again, you know, to go back to the, you know, the way I think about the birds is that they show the promise and then the failure to deliver fully, uh, you know, and I guess what nothing was delivered is a song yeah. uh, that's on their next album. Uh, but, you know, it, the failure of the 60s and that links them to it like you know they just couldn't they couldn't make it real and uh wasn't born to follow i just think 
uh, the connection with Easy Rider, which they have a couple of other tracks, obviously, and they have an album called The Ballad of Easy Rider. It's just, it's a beautiful, beautiful haunting song. Wasn't Born to Follow is uh, is, is great uh, study in, in, in juxtaposition, right? Because you have these lyrics about independence and, and kind of almost a hippie independence sort of, sort of set of lyrics. As Nick mentioned, you have also this not conflict, but existing at the same time, country western with the psychedelic lens. You have the pe- pedal steel sound with that very dissident electric guitar sound. It's really a well constructed song. I will want to dive beneath the white cascading waters. She may beg, she may plead, she may argue with her logic and mention all the things I learned that really have no value. In the end, she will surely know I wasn't born to follow. Well, not only that, but also the fact that it follows draft morning. Yeah. Right, so like, okay, you're being drafted right, right. in Vietnam, and like, complete with sound effects, like literally. I mean, this is I think there's an alternate version on the reissue which is much better that doesn't have like the stupid like, like machine guns and explosions <laughs> in the background. Crosby hated that. Crosby, okay, like they recorded the backing track when Crosby was still in the band, then they fired him, and then they yeah. rewrote the lyrics and sung the lyrics without him, which I just think is it's just a great. You know, great F you move. Uh, they, they, they were just so petty back at that point. But then, yeah, Wasn't Born to Follow seems like an answer song to it. I will say this, that the heart of this album for me uh, and the thing that makes me love it so much, like love it with a kind of a, you know, like a pure golden glow, are the three songs that follow that. It's Get to You, Changes Now, and then Old John Roberts. And Get to You is a song that, yeah. I've, again, this is something I've done on Twitter, man. You can look it up. I just think, like, <laughs> y- y- you don't know the birds. Like, you don't realize that the, here's a song, just this beautiful, lilting kind of a country waltz uh, about, you know, getting on an airplane, flying across the ocean to come see you. You know, standing in the airport, I am waiting on a plane. Such a beautiful little well song and then all of a sudden it goes into this like freak out psychedelic moment where it's like you know that's a little better that's a little better they're feeding roger's voice through the leslie speakers of a uh, of a hammond organ uh, which is a trick that i think they picked up from the beatles um god it's such a beautiful cameo i always love to use that word because it's like yeah, it's two minutes and 30 seconds and uh, it's never been included on any other boxed sets perversely in my opinion <laughs>
Um, and, and then another one that has never been included on any of your compilations, perversely, is the song Change Is Now, which I told uh, yeah. Nick earlier that I was going to have to have my own embarrassing revelation about my experiences <laughs> with psychedelics. And it is, it is listening to Notorious Bird Brothers. And uh, uh, just as he said, uh, the... the um, the I'm, this is something I did in college, like a couple of times. I'm not really like you know. I'm not. I'm not. You know. I'm, I'm an attorney. You know, I'm an old man. I'm a father. I'm. I'm boring now. But back in college, man, when I put on changes now and I listen to that guitar solo, first of all, the entire concept is so hippie, trippy. You know, zens. You know, changes now. Changes now. Things that once seemed solid are not. I mean, you can almost yeah. see like, oh, the walls are melting around me. And indeed, they were as I did this. And then it hits that guitar solo. That guitar solo is my favorite guitar solo in the entire Bird's discography. Clarence White did a lot of fantastic folk and country rock stuff later on. Uh, but when McGuinn goes into, I guess, you know, is it outer space or is it inner space <laughs> with that guitar solo? Uh, I To this day, I don't have to, you know, I can just be like sitting around, you know, drinking coffee or water for that matter. And I listen to that and I moved. It actually moves me. The harmonics are moving. They're yearning. It seems like as this is kind of a theme that Nick has gone back to again. It's like it's striving for something better, uh, not quite reaching it, not quite reaching it. But it's almost there. It's within its grasp. That's changes now. That is one of the best bird songs of all time. That is definitely in my top five. strong argument it's it's a beautiful i mean this album for me is when they um you know it's it's in a way it's not the most representative uh but as i guess we've been discussing there is no fully representative birds album because they shift (laughs) so much but it's just so well done and and, you know one of the things i i I think you guys would be able to speak to this with a lot more expertise than i can gary usher is -hmm. the producer he also produced younger than yesterday and he, he also, he also produce, produced Don't Worry Baby by the yeah. Beach Boys. Right? Yeah, well, this is, I mean, he collaborated with the Beach Boys, mm-hmm. and he was going to produce their next album, but he 
spent too much money on uh, Chad and Jeremy's of cabbages and kings, and so got bounced because he was he you know Columbia didn't uh, trust him anymore. But the production on this and younger than yesterday, and I don't know if it was Usher or somebody else, but there are those weird moments like the slashing guitars and the discordant. Um, solos and things that come in and you know in something like get to you where it's this beautiful song of yearning and then it gets weird changes now gets weird and, right. and disruptive it's you know it's it's just fantastic um because you know right when you're about to you know get with it and just go with the flow you get yanked out of that it's it's like a brechtian uh, alienation effect you know through sound and i i just you know really really uh, powerful stuff and that leads us to a abrupt shift, as Nick was talking about abrupt shifts on the album, but an abrupt shift in uh, in personnel and an abrupt shift in uh, style for the band's next album, which is Sweetheart of the Rodeo. Uh, I mentioned earlier this is my uh, this was my really introduction to the uh, to the deeper catalog of the Birds, past like that initial Greatest Hits album. And uh, it's all due to the addition of a guy named Graham Parsons. And Jeff and I did a whole show about Graham Parsons not too many weeks ago with Ben Jacobs, in which we went very in-depth on Sweetheart of the Rodeo, uh, because it is in many ways a Graham Parsons album. Graham Parsons is, is hired by the Birds, by Roger McGuinn, ostensibly to play like jazz piano. And it turns out that he was able to, A, change Roger McGuinn's mind on the entire direction of the next album. McGuinn wanted an overview of American pop music. I think he had like a two-album idea to do this. And Parsons said, yeah, why don't we do this uh, country, uh, rural, soul kind of stuff? And eventually uh, got McGuinn to agree and and then took over. I mean, Graham Parsons, 21 years old, a, a, a nobody. Uh, hired into play piano is now changing the shape of the band. Now, these country leanings were there uh, in the birds, but Parsons brought everything to the forefront, and his force of personality was just huge in the band. If you listen to Sweetheart of the Rodeo, uh, McGuinn sings uh, a good number of the tracks, but Parsons, you can hear Parsons' vocals on some of the uh, tracks that are available on the expanded versions. I mean, Parsons was on vocals on virtually all these tracks on Sweetheart of the Rodeo before. He, he, he gets, he gets, uh, originally he would have sung like six to five, yeah. uh, and then uh, Chris Holman gets one, and I think he's only on, he's now on three of them, but um you know, nevertheless, his influence yeah. is all over this thing. It's it, again, we, we did, we did when when we had Ben Jacobs on our show to do Grand Parsons. We spent like a, a good like thirty minutes, forty minutes on this album. So I think one of the reasons that we are not going to like cover the yeah. territory that we've already covered with it again is because you can go back and hear what we said. Um, but it's just as, as I, you know, I said there, and I will repeat again. It's like hilarious that this this kid he's just like kind of like got a bit of a name on the LA scene. Like, Literally comes in one of the biggest bands on the planet and says, "You are now a country band." <laughs> and 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 Roger McGuinn, bless his heart, he was just like, "Okay, all right." You know, I think he, he was persuaded a lot by Chris Hillman, who uh, was very, you know, again, he's the one guy in the band who came from kind of a bluegrass country background. Right. Um, and uh, this is the album for me that when I first got, I got all these albums kind of serial, sequentially. I mean, I had greatest hits, but even the greatest hits, it only had one song. It had, you ain't going nowhere, right? And I was like, well, that's nice. Very country, but it's nice. Um, then I actually got these albums in a row, and then I got to Sweetheart of the Rodeo, and uh, yeah, you know, like, you know, you know, like insert GIF here, my head explode. 
this is nothing like anything you'd ever heard from them before. Yes, the country influences were prevalent in a lot of their earlier albums. Notorious Birds Brothers in, in particular. You hear a lot of it in stuff like Wasn't Born to Follow and Get to You and to Changes Now and things like that. Old John Robertson. But this is like, we're going to Nashville and we're going to have some serious ass pedal steel. They literally and, did, right? I mean, he even convinced yeah. uh, McGuinn to record in Nashville. Right. He said, Which like, you know, did not go very well. In, in a way, I mean, the music is great when they did performances. Uh, in Nashville, they were not particularly uh, well received. They weren't received because it was like, who are these hippie long hairs yeah. to come here <laughs> and play our music to us and think that like they can come into our territory? Uh, but what they didn't realize is that Parsons was entirely sincere about his love for this music. And yeah. the band, and this is the thing, he, he permanently altered the trajectory of the birds. That is the thing that has to be understood from this album and everything onwards. He changed their fundamental sound mm -hmm. uh, he gave them a country sound and i think he convinced mcguinn in a fundamental way even though grand parsons as i said on our other episode is like the, the one the last person on the planet you would ever want to rely on <laughs> ever want to have as a band member He's, he was the most shaky dodgy person yeah. sketchiest dude on the face of this earth um uh he you know he joined the band he you know, spun their head around 360 degrees and then he left before the album was even released yeah because thanks graham uh and uh you know this album was a commercial flop at its time and now it is treated as one of the greatest albums in history and i still to this day can't imagine what people must have thought when they turned on their uh, radio or, or they put their or, or LP just, on the table right, and they heard saw, you ain't going nowhere or just saw the cover find me a flute and a gun that shoots tailgates and substitutes strap yourself to a tree with roots you ain't going nowhere It's, uh, you know, and I, I think we would all agree, and certainly the critical kind of consensus, this is the last great Birds record, and it closes out at just an incredibly creative period. Um, it's also, you know, the one thing I'll say, uh, not to spend too much time on it, but, you know, it opens and closes with Dylan covers. And I think it, also, it didn't just influence or change the direction of the Birds and a lot of music. I think it had a major influence on Dylan as well. Obviously, it comes out with national skyline and and you know kind of more countrified stuff later um but you know this this is the type of album you know where you it, it, whether you like the birds or not this this is a major fork in in popular music and i, I think it expanded things and expanded uh, you know it, it made things possible in nashville that hadn't been possible before too so it's, it's just a real incredible uh, record particularly listened to after you know when you go through the discography it's just it's both a revelation and uh you know and a, and a turning point i have to say this it's an album that i hated when i first heard it mm -hmm. I, I didn't hate i didn't i just didn't like it i was like this is this is not for me i listen to it now and i absolutely adore it i think there are weaknesses i don't think like the the it ends a little weekly i don't think like the blue canadian rockies or life in prison those two don't do anything for me but all the original material works uh, I really do like uh, Roger McGuinn's. Uh, you know, this is very clever because you know, you know, the, the, you know, get Graham Parsons is, is guiding this thing basically through his force of personality. But they give uh, McGuinn Pretty Boy Floyd, 
uh, that that great little outlaw rebel song, you know, uh, about you know a, a bank robber uh, who who uh, you know robs you know some people rob uh, uh, with a six gun and some with a fountain with pen. a fountain pen, right? Which you know <laughs> I think Nick was talking to us pre-show, and he's like, you know, I did a research on that, and that's not actually true. Actually, yeah. you know, the people who actually uh, rob you with a gun, they're robbing real people, you know. Uh, but it's a, it's 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 a Woody Guthrie song, and it's a great Woody Guthrie song, and McGuinn just does a fantastic. As through this life you travel, you'll meet some funny men. Some will rob you with a six gun and some with a fountain pen. As through this life you ramble, as through this life you roam, you'll never see an outlaw dig family from your home. If you really want to go to, you know, hear our appreciation of Sweetheart of the Rodeo, you can go back to our, our episode on Graham. Uh, but everything on this album, other than those last those two songs that I mentioned, is just glorious. I, I I love listening to whether it's Roger or it's Graham singing about the Christian life. I love Chris Hillman singing about how he's a pilgrim in a strange land and he's going to go see his family when he dies and crosses that big river. I love the two Dylan covers and I guess you know the one thing to say is that nothing was delivered is, is a great way to end this album and I think the symbolic thing um, you know for uh, me, you know Nick was talking about this, is that Nothing was delivered is a way of saying um, that, you know, Dylan is country, Dylan is rock, rock is country. It's all cosmic soul music. Nothing was delivered, and it's up to you to say just what you had in mind when you made everybody pay. Now I hope you won't object to this Giving back all that you owe But the sooner you come up with it And the sooner you can go Nothing is better Nothing is best That's why they do You Don't Miss Your Water. But that wasn't a country song. That's no. a Stax Volt soul That's hit. That's fantastic. Right? Yeah, exactly. You know, this is all one sound. And that was the ethos that the birds would embrace. That was the ethos that Graham Parsons fully and wholeheartedly believed in despite whatever his personal flaws were and uh you know that's that's kind of where they go from here on but the problem is is that what comes from here on out is uh is a lot more flawed and i guess we'll probably take this one a this bit a lot more briskly the, the post parsons career of the birds is uh it incorporates uh what six out five albums um and uh it's a lot better than people say it is but I wouldn't claim that any of them really kind of rise to the level of anything that had come before. And I think a lot of the reason for this is like poor decisions made on what songs go on to what albums. So Dr. Birds and Mr. Hyde, that's from 1969. And it's like Dr. Bird, like they, they, 
they, they went out with Sweetheart of the Rodeo. It flopped massively. They not only didn't gain a country audience, they alienated their rock audience. <laughs> They're like, well, what is it? like all the, the, the rock kids in Los Angeles. There's a you know, famous story of them you know, getting booed. They, they, this became a song. There's a song on Dr. Birds called Bad Night at the Whiskey. Where they're playing at Whiskey A Go Go, which is like this you know famous LA club, and like they're getting booed and catcalled. People are throwing bottles at them because they're playing country music. Um, uh, so they lost their audience that they had, and they didn't gain the audience that they were hoping to get. And now they're just stranded out on an island. And I gotta give credit to Roger McGuinn for leading this band and actually creating some pretty good music throughout the rest of their career. Although the last two albums are pretty problematic, I think. Dr. Birds is a better album than people give it credit for as long as you take off the two stupid soundtrack songs, which are Child of the Universe and Candy. I, I like the last Grand Parsons song. I like Drugstore Truck Driving Man, yeah. which they wrote about their bad experience with a Tennessee DJ, a Nashville DJ. Uh, I really like King Apathy, the third yeah. song. That's my you opinion. like message songs. collecting stained glass rubies diligently Bearing looks of frenzied madness Slowing down their big game Middle class suburban children Wearing costumes that reveal Blindly follow recent pipers With their mystical appeal Oh now like I love hippie, I, I, counterintuitive hippie message songs. Yeah, you know what? I'm a secret prog man. What can I tell you? I, I just <laughs> I, I love my hippie stuff, um, and I even like. You know what? Um, this is embarrassing. I, I like that stupid song about the dog. Old, the old blue, big, oh, old blue. The big dig, the big dumb dog that died, and when he died, he yeah. like created a crack in the. My old blue, he was a good old hound. You could hear him hollering miles around. When I get the hippie, first thing I do. What do you guys think about this one? And I guess we can probably fold up Ballad of Easy Rider into it as well. Yeah, I, well, I, you know, if we're looking at the, uh, the most interesting thing about Dr. Birds and uh, Mr. Hyde is the uh, travel log or the, you know, the, the schemata, whatever, on the back where I believe the, uh, the birds land as spacemen and they take their spacesuits off and put on country western gear. <laughs> Um, and, you know, that tells a story that's more interesting than virtually anything on this record. You know, it opens with uh, a cover of This Wheels on Fire, the Rick Danko, Bob Dylan song, which is bad. There's alternative takes that are better. Uh, this is the album where Gary Usher got bounced because he had you know, spent too much time with the uh, Muddy with Chad and Jeremy. And they bring in Bob Johnston, who, you know, Bob Johnston, who had uh, been Dylan's, you know, basic producer for like five years, almost five years at this point, and has done a lot of great stuff, but is totally bad for this. Yes. Because, you know, as you're saying, like, 
they had alienated country people and alienated their own rock, you know, kind of crowd. And so you bring in somebody like Bob Johnson. It, it, none of it makes sense. Yeah, Bob, think, Johnson, Bob Johnson can produce like a spare kind of country yeah. stripped down album, but he can't produce a band that's trying to rock. No. And, and yeah. And, you know, it, uh, this wheels on fire is, a you know, what what it shows is actually their treatment of it that that appears on the record is that it's a ponderous song. And I think the I'm not a band fan, uh, particularly, but it's the type of song which you know it seems to be deep and mysterious, but it's actually just vague and ambiguous. Um, and I think you know that comes through on this. I don't like songs about dogs, um, so like <laughs> Old Blue, and they've got they, a bunch. that becomes a mini genre yes. of bird songs during their <laughs> their decline. Right? Yeah, Fido, like, right? That bugler, the you know, uh, like God, I hope you're in doggy heaven. Um, th- you know, th- this is not a uh, it's not a good album. Drugstore Truck Driving Man is an interesting song. But again, you know, that's it's a weird emanation of like, you know, we love country music. We love the tradition. And by the way, you're all a bunch of scummy racists. Uh, literally, literally he says he's clan. a drugstore truck driving man. He's yeah. the head of the Ku Klux yeah. Klan. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You're not going to really win a lot of friends when you're, you're uh, <laughs> you know, you're tarring the biggest most famous and beloved DJ of all country music. Having said that, though, if we're also talking about the Ballad of Easy Rider, which came out a couple months after, I guess, because I I think uh, Dr. Birds comes out in February, Ballad of Easy Rider comes out in October of that year, and it has a bunch of stuff that McGuinn did for the soundtrack of Easy Rider. This is, uh, and I I don't want to jump over any more discussion of Dr. Birds, but the Ballad of Easy Rider is, is a very... It's a minor record. It's like, you know, it's a, it's like a minor novel of a great novelist, but it's it's a pretty phenomenal record that really hits um, a lot of the tracks, I think, are traditional, uh, mm-hmm. you know, uh, traditional songs like um, Jack Tar the Sailor, which is, you know, like a sea shanty type song, is great. Um, Tulsa County, Oil in My Lamp, uh, it, their version of It's All Over Now, Baby Blue, uh, which is their second take on it. They had done a, a fast-paced version that was left off, or was left off of... Uh, it was left off of turn turn, 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 yeah. And, and I have to one, say, I like that earlier one a little bit. Oh, okay, yeah, this one is just, it's a beautiful, long slow, and it's like, you know, the 60s are definitively over. <laughs> and, you know, in Easy Rider, there's a moment where Peter Fonda, who's a big fan of the birds, um, looks over at Dennis Hopper and says, you know, Billy, we blew it. Like, you know, that because they were retiring based on drug money. So the whole idea of the 60s dream had a bad foundation. It's going to it's going to lead to, you know, a bad end. And I think this album perfectly kind of captures that moment of like where, man, we blew it. The river flows, it flows to the sea. Wherever that river goes, that's where I want to be. Flow, river flow Let your waters wash down Take me from this road To some other town All he wanted was to be free And that's the way it turned out to be
it's filled with sadness uh, in, in a very interesting way. Deportee, uh, Deportee, yeah, the uh, Woody Guthrie song is beautiful. It's, I mean, it's spare, uh, wonderful songs, but also really depressing. Uh, back to Dr. Bird's Mr. Hyde for one moment, because I, I actually agree with Jeff. I think King Apathy is a, is a pretty great song. It uh, feels like a union of, uh, of country and, and psychedelic, that start-stop groove and the echo-laden country picking, kind of like King Apathy. But I also agree with Nick. I think Ballad of Easy Rider is my favorite of these late-career Birds uh, albums. Uh, Terry Melcher's back in to produce. It sounds a whole lot better than Dr. Birds and Mr. Hyde to start with. Um, but you've got some interesting stuff here. I like the Tulsa County uh, cover with with yeah. Gwyn on vocals. Um, my favorite song on the album, though, is that is that hard country approach on "There Must Be Someone." Uh, Gene Parsons, no relation, sings that one, and it's a song that was written by Vern uh, Gosden from from country. He, he he returned home and found his wife left him and took took his kids with him, and so it's delivered in an appropriate manner for that kind of uh, that kind of set of lyrics. Very haunting. Uh, melody and, and a great lead vocal by Gene Parsons. I, I think there must be someone is the, is the best uh, song on Ballad of Easy Rider. Well, all my so-called friends have turned their backs on me They were looking for someone I just couldn't be Let them go and have their fun Unaware of the harm they've done And there must be someone I can turn to This has, uh, I don't know if there's any truly like outstanding standout tracks but it's pretty consistent oil in my lamp i like has a very early early 70s kind of beach boys feel very harmony laden harmony laden arrangements um on on oil in my lamp um so this this is my favorite of the the late career uh birds records i think it's not my favorite of the late career bird records the next one is actually my favorite of those but i i think i will say this this is the period well there are two things that need to be pointed out uh the first is that this is the period where I think every one of these records would have been vastly improved if like some of these outtakes or alternate takes had been in, substituted or included instead of the stuff that made it onto the album. That's band politics that are that are going on there. The things, decisions that, of course, we are not there to, to witness. We don't know what happened. But man, if they had included the alternate version of Oil in My Lamp on Ballad of Easier Rider, that would have made it a lot better. If they had included the alternate version of all the things on Untitled coming up, oh my god, that would have just been the highlight of that album. Um, the the other thing that actually has to be pointed out that we haven't discussed is the massive personnel changes in the band. So after after Sweetheart of the Rodeo, what happens is that not only does Graham Parsons leave, but that that sh- that little that damn thief, that damn thief, he steals Chris Hellman away from him as well. <laughs> All right, so uh, Chris Hellman and Graham Parsons leave, and then they of course for- form the Flying Burrito Brothers, which is a great thing for the you know history of music because that gives us the Gilded Palace of yeah, Sin. What a, what a which, great record! Yeah, which is one of the greatest country rock records. Oh, yeah, yeah, that, yeah. We again we talked about it on on our episode of Parsons. Oh my God, I yeah. love that record. Um, uh, but that leaves McGuinn as the only original bird in the entire band. So who does he get? Um, 
gets a couple of other guys. The, the personnels are going to change. Gene Parsons is the drummer until the end, uh, as, as Scott said. No relation to Graham. Uh, <laughs> but the most important addition, and this is the one that really needs to be emphasized, is that they get a guy called Clarence White. Clarence White had already been playing with this band for uh, uh, years and on several albums. You can hear him on Younger Than Yesterday. You can hear him on uh, Notorious Bird Blooders. He, he plays on Wasn't Born to Follow, I believe, and he plays on Changes Now. Uh, you can hear him on uh, uh, Sweetheart of the Rodeo. And at this point, it was just a natural idea. Okay, you know what? You're going to become a full member of the band. Uh, one of, for me, at least, the highlight of the later era of the birds is Clarence White. He is a fantastic guitarist. And mm -hmm. the irony is, is that as compromised as some of these later period albums are, he also made them, uh, they were almost an incompetently bad live band <laughs> during their early Crosby, you know, Clark, you know, uh, Hillman years. And then once Clarence White joins the band and the albums become weaker, the live stuff, and I've got a ton of live birds bootlegs from this era, they are a crack band. They are an absolutely fantastic band. Um, so it, the sad the tragedy of Clarence White's career is that he's not with us anymore, and it's not because you know, he, he did the standard rock star thing where he overdosed or you know, he was driving too fast you know, in his car, high on cocaine or anything like that. He was literally loading amplifiers into the back of a truck after a gig with his brother in 1973, and a drunk driver hit him and killed him, uh, which is just, you know, one of those things that just makes you – just feel really glum because he's uh, a guy who's one of the most influential guitarists, certainly like top 10 in country rock of all time. And he, he contributes so much to these albums. Um, Parsons, though, I think does a pretty good job too. Gunga Din is a song on Ballad of Easy Rider that I really like. It's a very simple, kind of a low key, easygoing song. Uh, it, it just sort of, uh, you know, like it goes low key. It's about their bassist John York being refused seating at a restaurant because he came in wearing a leather jacket. He was going there with his mom for Mother's Day or something like that. One other thing is that we have to point out that this is this is the the best version of Jesus is just all right by me that you're yeah. going to hear. 
you know, this is of course a song that was made. This, this was a single for the for the yeah. Birds. It was actually a hit for them, and they played it. Um, uh, but then, of course, the Doobie Brothers like took it into the top ten or something. Are like we that. are are we united in our uh, dislike of the Doobie Brothers? You know what? I'm always gonna I'm <laughs> always gonna like taking it to the streets, and I'm always gonna like uh, what a fool believes. Well, that's later. Yeah, other that's than Michael that, McDonald I, era. I, I like their unerring and undying belief in the music. You know that somehow, if you just listen to if the you music, just... <laughs> uh, you know that the music can cure cancer in their bad '80s comebacks on the Doctor. You know, it's well. Like... You know what? Listen, I'm going to tell you, Nick. If you just if you just play that funky Dixieland, then little mama, well, I'm going to take you by the hand. You know, we could beat this uh, coronavirus if we just listen to the music. <laughs> okay, listen though. Jesus is just a yeah. right. Was of course made famous, more famous at least, by the Doobie Brothers, but the Birds version just cooks. so much better there is and and also on bird maniacs and we should also probably you know that we're skipping over there's the ballad of east rider untitled then bird maniacs the names of the albums get worse i mean, started <laughs> with dr birds and mr hyde um but they you know they start doing more kind of christian uh you know kind of gospel uh heavy chorus stuff which also i think later down the road influences dylan a bit and some of his later 70s stuff uh, but um, because yeah, it's, all, you know, it's that, all part of the tradition, I think, is yeah. the idea. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No. And, uh, um, you know, if we want to talk about Untitled, which was something of a return to form, the double album that came out in 70 and it had a live disc and a studio disc. And for me, the standouts there um, uh, are uh, Chestnut Mare, the uh, Roger McQuinn, Jack Levy song, which is pretty great. I mean, just again evocative of a world I, I choke up thinking about it and i love the live version of eight miles high that's 16 minutes long i knew a couple of older people who were into you know kind of fm radio stations when they came out and they were like you know that and a couple of other long tracks that covered an entire side of an album they would wait to listen to that on the radio and it was so you know kind of weird and wonderful and you know what we you know we had grown up in this cookie cutter world and suddenly you know uh, the, the birds are playing a 16 minute version long you know version of eight miles high which really you know like if you stick with it man when they come back towards the end of that it is just one of the most uh powerfully uh, beautiful uh, kind of orgiastic uh, moments in rock as far as I'm concerned.
I mean, I think that's that's a pretty great live performance. Although I will argue that nobody needs to hear a four-minute-long skip batten bass solo <laughs> in the middle of it, because uh, you know he's just him going like, yeah. it's, it's not the most. It's not John Entwistle, or it, it's, it's no, not like you know, like the, Jimmy Garrison. It's like it. That's what's great is it has to be that long so that it means something that you right. stuck it out. But it's, yeah. <laughs> I agree. It's, it's, Untitled is an album that is a return to form, and yet I, I kind of like you know it upsets me because I think it could have been so much better if they just yeah. made some better decisions on what to include. Uh, the, the live album. This is I always yeah. think of it as like a, as, it's like a sort of alternate universe version of Pink Floyd's Umaguma. Which you know, I I, I opened. We we had Anthony Fisher on our show. I joked, it's like, is this the worst double album ever made? But I also included it as one of my two, like you know, definitive records at the end of the show because the live disc is the most. It's, it's like one of the highlights of Pink Floyd's career, and the studio disc is one of the worst things they ever did. <laughs> this, this is like you're shrinking the parameters on both sides. Yeah. The live disc isn't as transcendent as maybe that Pink Floyd disc is, but it's incredibly good. This band was so hot live, and the studio disc is not nearly as bad as Floyd's, but it could have been so much better. Chestnut Mare. You know, this is, by the way, this is the moment when, when, when Roger McGuinn is writing a, a, a rock opera. Yes. God, you know, Pete Townsend, Pete Townsend, you know, probably did some bad things to rock music because everyone was writing rock operas with a guy named Jacques Levy, who we last saw on our Bob Dylan episode, uh, you know, doing stuff on Desire. Uh, but, right, this is earlier. This is five years earlier. And he's writing a, a rock opera based on. Henrik Ibsen, of all things, Henrik Ibsen's Pier Gint. Uh, you know, we're, in Pier Gint, this is like this Norwegian play where the guy is like obsessed with chasing this one white goose that he wants to kill. Well, it's a chestnut mare in this one. And, uh, you know, of course, it's also a metaphor for like an unattainable woman. It's just hilarious and fun and a beautiful, beautiful beautiful chorus melody where like, you know, you know I'm gonna I'm gonna, I'm gonna rope that girl i'm gonna get her one day and you know it's um it's one of the last great truly great studio birds songs we're falling down these crevice about a mile down i'd say i look down and i see this red thing below us coming up real fast and it's our reflection this little pool of water about six feet wide and one foot deep and we're falling down right through it we hit, we splashed it dry That's when I lost my hold She got away But I'm gonna try to get her again someday But I will say this: that there are um, there are songs in here that I do also like. Like, there's this. Okay, yes, it's dumb because it's about reincarnation. But you know what? Yesterday's train. I love it. I love that song, and I and I, I like Clarence White's vocal on it. And I'll even say that, like, you know, um, 
the normal album version of all the things is sort of mediocre kind of country rock mm. uh, but man if you go find that alternate version that's on disc two the reissue disc two it opens it uh, holy christ i don't know why they didn't include this it, it's it's a throwback to younger than yesterday or notorious it's this rickenbacker 12 string thing with these intense three-part harmonies uh i i don't understand where this came from and why it was excluded from the album. Again, you know, Untitled is an album which to me basically stands on the strength of its if it's live disc. And it opens with, of course, another one of those, um, you know, Levy and uh, McGuinn songs, Lover of the Bayou, where he's, you know, spouting a bunch of nonsense. He's like, you know, I, uh, you know, I was, you know, I got the mojo hand from like, you know, this guy, you know, like I'm a lover of the bayou. But man, yeah, it's just. He's, uh, he's uh, running into uh, John Fogarty, chewing uh, down there somewhere with that swamp rock. Yeah, it's. It... Oh, wait, 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 Nick, Nick, you say you're a lover of the bayou? Well, I was born on the bayou, you son of a bitch. Exactly. It's this a good thing. The bayou's not big enough for the both of us. Catfish pie and a Greek with that. I'm a lover of the bayou. Marky doorstep with a half-wit rag. I'm a lover of the bayou. It, uh, yeah, you know, uh, this is one of the things I highly recommend uh, if people have the opportunity to see Roger McGuinn live. And he has, you know, over the course of his career, has really polished a set that is pretty good. And some, like all the things I've heard him do live, I don't know if he's currently doing it. And it's pretty incredible. And also just the season, um, you know, where his... Uh, you know, he, he's a great performer in a stripped down, like in a solo band. Um, and I agree with you. There's something weird going on with their song selection and the production. And you, you hear stories, if you read about the birds, like where 
they cut the tracks and then they like they're hiding from their wives so they can't stick around in the studio to kind of come up with a finished version and they put it in the hands of terry melcher or something and like an album comes out that's a disaster and they claim they had no understanding of what was being done that you know it, it doesn't quite add up but it doesn't add up i mean it's, they it's, have it seems like a lot of excuse making yeah yeah you know Melcher is fascinating, uh, you know, as a character, yeah. and he's, you know, one of the inspirations for the uh, Peter Fonda character in the Limey. That's the people. Uh, <laughs> it, I, I, you know, it's just, uh, you know, and he obviously, I assume, uh, I whenever Matt Welch talks about the Beach Boys, I always try to bring it immediately to uh, Charles Manson. And, uh, <laughs> Terry Melcher, of course, is the, you know, is the uh, linchpin of. Uh, no, 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 no. I would actually argue that Kim Fowley is the linchpin. Yeah, actual, well, actual, yeah, actual, yeah. like, child rapist Kim yeah, Fowley? Kim, oh, Kim God, Fowley, we have to well, talk about that. Kim Fowley is, you know, I, I don't even want to talk about it. He's Voldemort, yeah. as far as I'm <laughs> He is horrible. All right, Scott, your thoughts on Untitled before we move on to these last few albums? You guys quickly. covered uh, a lot of Untitled for me. Uh, it's, a, it's a passable album, especially on the... Um, on the studio end, I, I do like uh, Just a Season, which is one of those songs that was written for the musical, this lighter sort of folk rock melody with much heavier lyrics. And uh, other thing I want to say about Chestnut Mare quickly, and Jeff, tell me, I, I just don't remember if we talked about this on the Elvis Costello episode, but uh, Elvis Costello wrote a song for uh, Roger McGuinn called You Bow Down, which yeah. uh, is on All This Useless Beauty. And it's clearly it, to it totally sounds like chestnut. It, Mare, right? it, it just ripped off that melody. I mean, not ripped off, borrowed, whatever, right? But it's the same melody from Chestnut Mare. And yeah, um, you bow down exactly right. same kind of line, right? And it's totally, I mean, it's totally birdsy. I mean, so it's it's not like he's trying to hide anything. It has the same kind of sort of Rickenbacker sound. He wrote it. He wrote it for Roger McGuinn. He's not trying to hide it exactly. Yeah, yeah. But but uh, quite obviously took some of that melody from Chestnut Mare for you bow down, which is a fantastic song by the way <laughs> so what do we want to say about i i don't even i okay nominally there are three remaining birds albums but in my life there are only two i i don't consider that final reunion uh, album to I, be a I, real I birds think we, album. we need to discuss that a little bit but why don't we talk about then the uh you know bird maniacs and bird maniacs farther and farther okay listen i'm gonna say like these are like universally treated as like just like you know disasters i will just say this about bird maniacs if you only listen to the first three songs yes and i did this the yeah, other day you're right you, you go through them and you're like wait this is actually a yes really good yeah. Album. yes yeah i agree <laughs> i, I, I the, Glory, glory, pale blue. I trust. I trust. Tasteful strings, great soul, kind of gospel songs. I think like, I wow. trust. I trust is a you know, and and this I guess is one of those records you know more than any of the other birds ones where what went wrong with the production uh, you know we can talk about that but those first three songs are are pretty phenomenal. Oh, it's so Oh my good lord god yeah, this is sudden. where kim fowley who we won't speak of 
Yeah, like really, it keeps uh, out. Oh, then yeah, you hit you hit Tunnel of Love. The lo- yeah. it's it's five it's five minutes long. It's five minutes long, and it's it's a stupid Fats Domino like fifties. Sh- it's like it, it, could there be anything less relevant to the birds than this? And, okay, you think that's bad? Oh, buddy, you yeah. think that's bad? Let me give you Citizen Kane. Okay, now we have Goofy Horns. Oh God, I want to die but when I get to in, this. Uh, old Hollywood, right? And power politics oh, in 1920s uh, yeah because okay, there, there's nothing there's nothing about yeah, they, the, bird, the birds there's nothing more relevant to the birds country rock or futuristic sci-fi folk rock psych rock sensibilities than old hollywood and citizen kane yeah. <laughs> it's just like kim Feli just wanted some friggin record royalties i'm so upset about those songs they're so terrible even the one that mcguinn sings that i want to grow up to be a politician awful too it's awful it's awful so like you know and then it gets tuneless i mean like the the version of jamaica say you will like it's you know there there are some songs and even full albums uh that are like this where when you listen to them you're like where is the music or something (laughs) like i i mean it is unutterably bad yeah, yeah, I actually, okay, I'm going to say this. I think that we did a Jackson Brown episode with uh, Cam Joseph, um, and we talked about Jamaica Say You Will. And we actually, I think Scott and I agree that we actually prefer the birds' version of this to really? Jackson okay. Brown's version. I'm not a fan of Jackson Brown. Okay, well, there you, you know, go. That, that I, might I, explain I'm, it. Uh, yeah, but but, um, but what I find absolutely hilarious is the way that Clarence, Clarence White, not Roger McGuinn, sings this song, yeah. and he sounds literally exactly like Jackson Brown. <laughs> like, every inflection his entire vocal tone you would have thought they just like brought okay guest vocalist jackson brown on jamaica say you will it is the same voice the same inflections it's almost like he copied it from a demo and he just like learned it like syllable by syllable like like a chinese person who doesn't speak english and just you know just like jamaica say you will it's weird uh i think it's a good song it's you know it's it's there's just as I said, the first three songs on this record are okay, but everything else other than that is almost unredeemable. Uh, I guess you know we'll, you wrap it up. But like, what do you think? I think I read some critic write a joke. So like, so like, Bird Maniacs was like you know like ultra orchestrated crap, and so then they did stripped down crap with Farther <laughs> Along, um, their final album uh, before they did the reunion. So what do you guys think of this final album? I'll just say this. I think that the, the one of their last songs about a damn dog, uh, I like it. I like Bugler yeah. I like quite a bit. Ah, the fish would bite, my helmet bite, would catch them possums in the pale moonlight. But no, just to please her. Bugler's voice like Abel's home, up from the cypress and down through the cold. The attention to detail is so poor, though, that on the label of some pressings it's bugler b-u-g-l-a-r and then others it's er i mean it's you know they're, they're spending more time 
picking their beards than you know producing music. At this yeah, they time. all they all have giant beards on the front cover of this album too, which is another like early nineteen seventies thing, you know, to to point out. But uh, Scott, you have any opinions, by the way, on either of these albums? Um, I, I completely agree. I mean, if you could read my notes, you'd say it's the same thing. First three songs on Bird Maniacs are are actually promising, and then. Well, you, you cover the rest. I, I trust is, is good. Farther along, um, I think Bugler is decent. Uh, Tiffany Queen, which I think is the first song mm. of the album. I, yeah, I wrote down. I like that one too. It sounds yeah. like Dave Edmonds would want to sound like like six years later. Um, kind of that almost uh, retro uh, rock saw uh, sound to it. Uh, Tiffany Queen's all yeah. right. Uh, Farther along, which which uh, White sings. It's really spotty at best. The band ended up producing this themselves, and uh, like Jeff mentioned, it went from really poorly produced uh, crap on Bird Maniacs to, eh, you know, it's, it's produced a little better, but the song quality is still, you know, the song quality is still not there on, on Farther Along. I uh, just want to say for the Birds reunion record in 1973, uh, the, the uh, and, and I guess I should say, I... When I was a kid and I was getting into the birds, I would go to this great record store in Red Bank, New Jersey called Jack's. And I would buy the albums by how much I could afford. And so all of the crappy records, the crappy <laughs> albums were cheaper. So I actually kind of worked backwards through the birds discography. So give me credit for that, you know, the ones that I couldn't take and take from the library. So yeah, the birds, um, birds greatest hits cost more two. than uh, yeah. farther along, yeah. right? Yeah, and farther along and birds maniacs, you know, and, and all of this. Um, and the the reunion record I actually got for 25 cents on an eight track tape at a flea market. I went to Rutgers, uh, you know, and this was, I guess, in the early 80s. And uh, I liked it. And what I want to say, I don't want to make a case for it as a great record, but it was the Gene Clark songs on that album are fantastic. And Gene Clark, he's, he's, the, only it, one, he's the only one who's trying. That's the yeah, thing. And, and he, you know, when he left the birds and then he worked with uh, Doug Dillard and did a couple of fantastic records. He worked with the Gosden brothers. Uh, and he, you know, he, he had an alcohol problem and he died young and without, you know, he was like in his 50, early 50s and he didn't really fulfill his potential. But he, you know, on th those rec those songs on the Birds 1973 reunion album are beautiful. His vocals are great. And, you know, again, for me, this is, you know, the birds, like they showed us that we can imagine and do whatever we want. We have like ultimate freedom and yet they couldn't, you know, get there. So, it, it, you know, we're kind of like the chest, you know, the, the character in Chestnut Bear. We have to keep trying because we, we're never quite getting what we want. Um, but you know how you know how the the, the birds uh, uh rather you know how the crosby still nash and young live album was called four-way street yeah well this this is literally basically this is five-way five street yeah it is yeah. It, it, it it's 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 not the birds in fact i think it was actually literally it, the title is quote birds right. but the actual billing is not the birds it's you know, crosby right. mcguinn clark yeah Clark and uh, you know Hillman, and that is everything you need to know about what kind of kind of corporate spirit was going on here. Uh, you know, as, as Nick points out, the only guy who actually brings his A game in any way yeah. is is Gene Clark. Gene Clark, who was you know just those first two albums, his contributions to them are stunning. They're so stellar; uh, they cannot be forgotten. And he reminds you of what you missed uh, by bringing good songs to this one. 
uh, Mr. Tambourine Man, Turn, 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 uh, Renaissance Fair from Younger Than Yesterday, Wasn't Born to Follow from uh, the Notorious Bird Brothers, and then the live version of Eight Miles High. And I think this song sequence kind of captures both their promise and the dissipation of that. And, you know, there's something about that Eight Miles High, that live version where you stick it out and you realize like they still have one great chorus left in them that just even talking about it, much less listening to it, it raises the hair on my back and it makes me feel like, you know, no matter how late in the day it is, everything is still possible and everything is still in front of us. And I think the birds, uh, you know, do that again and again. And that's, you know, that's for me is there, uh, I, I can meditate on what it means to be alive and to reach for the sun and try and get there as close as possible um, and keep doing that. Uh, it's almost like maybe not Daedalus and it's, it's more like Sisyphus. That's what the birds are to me at their best. Uh, so my two albums, uh, I will add uh, Younger Than Yesterday, which uh, I think is, again, perhaps their their best. And, um, and, and Sweetheart of the Rodeo, which, uh, I don't know, it's representative, but it's hard to get representative of a band that was really so eclectic during the course of their career. And I, I just think Sweetheart of the Rodeo from start to finish was extremely high quality uh, with the contributions from Graham Parsons and sort of bringing McGuinn and others along for the ride. Uh, on the songs, I um, I kind of assume people have heard some of the big ones. Um, I'll Feel a Whole Lot Better from that first album is on uh, my list of five. Uh, also, Have You Seen Her Face? Uh, you Don't Miss Your Water from Sweetheart of the Rodeo. Uh, Nick mentioned Wasn't Born to Follow. That one's also on my list. And I figure uh, when it comes to the birds, you've got to include one Dylan cover somewhere. So um, my, my Back Pages is my fifth song. I think it's the finest Dylan song the birds ever did uh jeff to you uh well i mean for me and i pretty clearly telegraphed this when we can get our discussion it's going to be younger than yeah younger than yesterday and notorious bird brothers uh but i really just need to emphasize that um, mr tambourine man turn 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 fifth dimension um and uh sweetheart of the rodeo they're all equally needed i just don't understand how you can think of yourself as like an informed consumer of music without having all of these albums they're all great but if i had to just pick two it would be those i nick you copped out you got the greatest hits that was a very it was a clever move my friend i I salute (laughs) you It's, it's a sign of weakness you know. No, no. I think I think it's a sign of sign of craftiness. Uh, my five songs. I'm gonna. Uh, you need to have, for me at least. You know, any discussion of the birds needs to include at least one Gene Clark song. For me, that's actually going to be a song that didn't make an album. It's "She Don't Care About Time," the B side of "Turn, Turn, Turn." Just a fantastic song. He wrote so many great pieces of music for the birds during those first two years and. That, to me, is actually his best. Uh, He actually co-wrote another one of them, uh, which is... I, the only reason I don't think it's his best is that I think you know McGuinn and Crosby also like contributed significantly to this, and that's Eight Miles High. Eight Miles High uh, again. Everybody in the band contributes there. Clark, McGuinn, Crosby. They are singing and playing their asses off. And I also will point out that everybody makes fun of Michael Clark as a drummer. Listen to Michael Clark's drum track on Eight Miles High. That is as crazy as he ever got. That wasn't some studio pro that they got in. They didn't hire some like you know wrecking crew musician. That's Michael Clark 
just going crazy on the trap set and it's amazing stuff and it's a, a song that kind of revolutionized the sound of music uh, my third song will be from younger than yesterday it's my back pages uh, scott already mentioned it and I, of course i've mentioned it in past episodes don't really need to talk more about it changes now from notorious bird brothers um changes now is uh just a song that it, it means so much to me from what i heard back when i was a kid and it still means so much to me now uh i still like you know there, there's some sort of inner hippie in me waiting to get out who wants to dance to the day when fear is gone um <laughs> yeah i love that song i love everything about it um and uh, i guess my final one is uh the song that should have ended notorious bird brothers uh and that's lady friend that's uh, the greatest song that the birds ever released <laughs> in my opinion and i know nick will disagree but sorry nick uh host prerogative i get to overrule you and say I that think you're wrong it should have been lady friends lady 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 friends well you see you're into that you're into that whole triad scene and i'm not i i'm just i'm just into the part where uh the birds go that is uh their most compact pop melody and uh it almost kind of drives me nuts to acknowledge that it came from the mind of david crosby <laughs> uh but you know what you, you, you know you just have to tip your cap sometimes it's like game respect game like this man actually wrote a fantastic song and uh it, it's uh sort of to me what epitomizes everything that the birds meant to me as a sonic phenomenon that sort of you know rush the sort of you know pure rush of joy and almost incomprehensible. You have to go back and listen to it again, again, and again to figure out how great a song it is. Uh, that would be my final track. The Political Beats look at the music and career of the birds. We thank our guest for today's episode, uh, Nick Gillespie, editor-at-large at Reason, co-author of the Declaration of Independence, How Libertarian Politics Can Fix What's Wrong with America, PhD in American Literature, former teen magazine editor, and uh, now Political Beats guest. Find him on Twitter, at Nick Gillespie. Nick, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, it's really been a uh, uh huge pleasure and uh thank you for helping me uh, rediscover the birds uh they meant so much to me as a kid and i go back to them every couple of years and this is uh it's a, they're great to listen to during a quarantine yeah and thank you for joining us man this yeah. has been so fun good episode jeff stay healthy stay safe well, I mean, I, you know what? I have to take my kid out for strolls. So, uh, you, know, I, you know, I hope some guy doesn't cough on me. <laughs> At Esoteric City for Jeff, 
You can follow me on Twitter at Scott Bertram. Remember, subscribe to our feed for new episodes, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, and NationalReview.com. Click on the uh, podcast tab and find all of the NR podcasts. You can find us on Facebook at uh, Political Beats and at Political underscore Beats on Twitter. This has been a presentation of National Review. This is Political Beats. <laughs>